talking about a movie that I recommended for Andy to watch, and that is the classic, one of my favorite of all time film noirs from 1947. That would be uh, Jacques Tourneur's uh, Out of the Past. Yeah, this was a great recommendation, Sean, so I want to thank you for this. Uh, so this movie is absolutely awesome. So uh, just a quick summary, it is a film noir it uh, has a lot of the classic film Norse files, especially the uh, femme fatale and uh, the double cross. Uh, lots of murder and lots of mayhem. So so uh, I really enjoyed this movie a lot. It's great. So uh, if you haven't seen it, I definitely recommend you uh, find it. Seek it out as soon as you can. <laughs> okay. Well, <clears throat> yeah, for, for those that, that aren't familiar with it, I'll give a little bit of setup. So uh, we've got... Uh, Kirk Douglas, who kind of plays this uh, menacing crime kingpin. This was only his second film, by the way. And mm-hmm. when the film starts off, he sends off uh, one of his henchmen uh, looking for a character who may or may not be Robert Mitchum, but we soon learn that he is. It's not really a spoiler. Um, mm-hmm. We we find him. Uh, he's he's now running a gas station. Uh, He's got a a young mute assistant who's running things for him that this henchman runs into and basically sends him to to seek out Jeff Bailey as who he's looking for. And uh, uh, Robert Mitchum's uh, away at a lake, uh, just fishing and relaxing with his his girl, who is uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, her her name's uh, in the movie is Ann Miller, but she's played by uh, Virginia Houston and. Uh, they're uh, they're confronted, and we uh, we learn through a flashback sequence that uh, Mitchum's character actually uh, is uh, living a, a, another life and uh, has a going by another name or a different last name. Anyways, he was always named Jeff, but uh, he was known as a uh, Jeff Markham before he moved to this town to kind of start over and uh, start a different life from his. Uh, get away from his dark past if you will and uh and we we soon learn that what he's running away from is that he he had a an affair with uh with a uh, with sterling's girlfriend who was uh played by jane greer and uh yeah anyways um uh, kirk douglas his his character wasn't too happy about that obviously and uh it, it's it basically comes down to him um, needing to c- 
confront his demons. And of course, you know, it's that old chestnut of not being able to to really run away from your past or hide from it, which mm-hmm. is a classic staple of film noir. Yeah. Uh, so this film is very much what I can describe like a spider web. So, so Robert Mitchum's character, Jeff, is essentially tangled in a spider web that was spun by uh, Jane Greer's character, Katie. So, uh, you know, he's running away from the past. And then uh, later on, when, when he reconnects and finds out that uh, she's back together with Kirk Douglas's character, uh, uh, she's eventually, uh, you know, seen to be double-crossing him, trying to get him uh, to take the fall for this murder. And uh, really, what I love about this film is that it shows that there's, there's almost no way to get out of this spider web without destroying yourself. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to give away the ending, but but uh, it's there's absolutely no way to get out of this spider web. Um, So, yeah, I was I was just looking up uh, Jock Turner's uh, other movies and he did uh, Cat People and I Walk with a Zombie. So I remember I walked with a zombie a long time ago. And uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's Kirk Douglas's second film. Uh, I do remember Robert Mitchum from Cape Fear. So that, that was a big one. And uh, surprisingly, this movie was remade in 1984 with Jeff Bridges. And uh, I guess there was a cameo in that movie by Jane Greer. The, the remake is called Against All Odds. Yeah, that is correct. <laughs> <laughs> but, <clears throat> you know, uh, really, this character is, I mean, so, I'm sorry, this movie, um, you know, every character is is unclean in some way and and even even the mute kid uh at the very end uh you know his intentions are good but uh you know not to give too much away but essentially he tells a lie in order to uh save someone else uh which is you know that it's great because uh you know the movie opens with him at the gas station and it closes with him at the gas station uh great sets great sets overall um it has those classic staples of uh you know that the femme fatale coming into a restaurant uh you know and and uh you know the great voiceovers um you know i i i think my uh exposure to uh film noir started uh with a lot of people you know it started off with uh with uh sin city and so um you know, you definitely see that a lot here, that the just how every character, you know, has that ability to double cross you. But uh, if you haven't seen this movie, uh, I definitely recommend it. The second part was a little bit more confusing, uh, but but eventually, you know, when you realize what, what uh, Kirk Douglas and, and uh, you know, uh, Jane Greer are trying to do to sort of poor Robert Mitchum is uh, they're trying to get him to take the fall for a murder uh, and, and get rid of a guy that's been uh, uh, blackmailing Kirk Douglas because he's been cooking his books, uh, you know, messing up his taxes for so long. So, so uh, it's confusing, but I think, again, that's the whole nature of this movie. It's just one big spider web of confusion. And, uh, you know, the only way to get out of it is to destroy part of yourself or destroy yourself in all. So yeah, 
four stars. Absolutely great. Definitely see it. So you said that Sin City was your introduction to uh, to film noir. Is this your your first actual genuine film noir experience, or are there any that you have seen as far as the classic ones go? Well, yeah, I've seen uh, Double Indemnity. Uh, that's great. Of course, the Maltese Falcon and um, oh shoot, uh, Touch of Evil. You know, so so. Well, you know, uh, James M. Cain, who wrote Double Indemnity, actually, um, he's he's not credited, but he actually did a script revision for this film. I can definitely tell because it's it's very clever. Um, you know, Double Indemnity is is a, uh, you know, for those who haven't seen it, it's it's also a very complicated movie, and uh, you know, no doubt that this is very complicated too. But that's just the nature of film noir is that uh, you know. The, the femme fatale is very much the spider queen who, who weaves a web. And, the, you know, the danger lies in the fact that she weaves a web that you can't, you know, no man can get out of. So, uh, yeah, just absolutely astounding. This movie is, is great. And one thing that's interesting is that a lot of film noir is obviously based on novels. That's kind of where the, the whole thing came from it's kind of similar to how um the italians got into making giallos they're all you know based on old novels mm -hmm. but because that was such a um a, uh, not necessarily frowned upon but you know it, it was kind of an um it wasn't a very high brow medium for authors be involved in so they would most of the time use aliases to write novels and in this case the the author used an alias to to write the novel and and also um to, to pen the screenplay as well mm -hmm. which in in retrospect it's it's too bad that a lot of these writers aren't around anymore to see how impactful their their work is and how you know they they probably regret not having their actual name on it but yeah i well you know i i uh uh for for a seminar i took of literature of the 1950s i i did read some mike hammer novels you know he was the he was a uh, the big inspiration the big detective for the 50s and uh you know i i think you're right uh you know, because when I read my camera, I'm definitely thinking of Marv from Sim City, just this uh, just a super violent character. Again, uh, you know, ensnared by this femme fatale. Um, oh, I just want to mention something else, too, is, is like what I thought was like really crazy is that uh, Jane Greer, uh, basically, uh, you know, Robert Mitchum starts off in his story as like this, this, uh, you know, private eye, really straight laced guy. And then eventually what happens is Jane Greer forces him to kill his former partner. So, so she's ruined his life in so many ways, but he still loves her. But, but at the same time, he knows that he's, if he's with her, she'll destroy him. So, so yeah, it's, it's a great intricate plot. Yeah. Uh, Robert Mitchum wasn't the, the first choice for this film. It's actually uh he was behind Humphrey Bogart who turned it down because, well, for a couple of reasons. One, what actually 
I guess attracted him to it is that he he saw parallels with with the Maltese Falcon, of course. Mm-hmm. But uh, he was contracted with Warner Brothers, who uh, didn't want the rights to it, and ended up going to RKO. And then uh, Dick Powell was next in line, who who's been in a lot of great stuff. I recently watched uh, Murder My Sweet for the first time that he was in. He was Mm, nice, great in that, but uh, apparently uh, Mitchum and Douglas uh, had a lot of tension going on while making this film. So I'm not sure if one of those other actors would have worked as well because I think that the the tension that Mitchum and Douglas actually had actually brought a lot to the film itself. Yeah, well, well, Douglas is kind of like a he was kind of like a straight laced actor, right? You know, come to set on time. Uh, memorize your parts and and Mitchum's more of like you know I I don't really care about memorizing parts you know I'll do what I can and then ad-lib it so you have like like uh you know Mr. Super Uptight and Mr. Super Relaxed and uh yeah I think that was a great choice because they're they're very different very different actors yeah the the remake that you were referring to earlier I, I haven't actually seen. I I do need to uh, to get the Blu-ray for it though. I know Image Entertainment put out a special edition of it before they folded into RJLE, and uh, I I hear it's a, a really good transfer on there. And I've I've always been curious about it. Um, yeah, uh, Jeff Bridges, right? Is, Jeff Bridges is the he's the main one that I I recognize, and of course I saw that Jane Greer makes a cameo. Yeah, Jeff Bridges plays the the Mitchum role, and uh, James Woods plays the the Douglas role. Oh, interesting. So, so I yeah. I saw that uh, Mitchum and Greer two years later teamed up with uh, teamed up again for the Big Steel in 1949. Uh, is that as good? Do you recommend that? Yes, I do definitely. Oh, nice. <clears throat> I don't know how familiar you are with with Taylor Hackford, who directed the remake he's he's a little bit of a mixed bag for me mm-hmm. um um i really enjoy um he made this great rock and roll documentary called hell hell rock and roll about chuck berry oh nice. which uh kind of led to him um doing the the ray charles biopic later on and uh before he did the remake of this he did officer and a gentleman which uh, of course was well made so so, so yeah, it's, it's definitely something I need to get around to checking out soon. One, one thing that was a little disappointing for, for me is uh, I, I learned that uh, Robert Mitchum actually hosted SNL back in the late 80s. Really? And uh, the the episode he did, um, he apparently did um, a parody skit of this film and called Out of Gas, and I was really looking forward to it. <laughs> and I... I actually watched that episode on on Peacock, and they apparently cut that skit out of the show for some reason. That's bizarre. Um, yeah, you know, you know it. And, it's really weird because uh, I was checking out the awards that you know possible Academy Awards, and and I didn't see that this won any, but um, it got preserved in the Library of Congress. So. Um, it seems to me, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but this was one of those movies that was like reevaluated after the fact to be to, to be seen, uh, you know, just as great. 
but uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a classic without a doubt for sure. I'd say about ninety percent of films that are you know considered classic in some way today weren't seen that way upon initial release. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, this is definitely one of my favorite directors too. Have you ever seen uh, Night of the Demon? No. Well, wait, wait, wait. Uh, well, I've seen Night of the Demons. So, <laughs> but um, you know, not not uh, Night of the Demon. I I saw I Walk with a Zombie, and I also saw that he did uh, the original Cat People, which <clears throat> I've, I've seen the remake of that. Uh, Paul Schrader's movie, yeah. Um, I I like Schrader's movie too. Definitely in a a whole different. I, it's it, it's it's different, um, but I, I like them both for different reasons. But I definitely, Bill the the original Cat People is a it is a perfect movie. While Paul Schrader's movie, there's a lot of things I I like about it, but it, it's not really uh, it, it, it doesn't it it, it does it, it goes in a completely <laughs> different direction and. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't really encapsulate what works so well in, um, in in Jacques Cat people, but it, it it's definitely worth seeking out. Well, I, I would say definitely make the original Cat people your top priority, but they they, they both have their merits for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, I'm I'm always interested in. And how they, uh, you know, people remake movies, especially really classic movies like this. But, uh, you know, I, I really hope one day that noir comes back as a genre. I know that uh, it had a semi-resurgence in uh, the, the 90s. You know, I, one of my favorites is uh, Nicolas Cage's Red Rock West. That's a great movie. But, uh, yeah, it's just not a genre that... that seems like it's it's uh going to have a resurgence anytime soon so uh you know i would love to see something like that uh just you know uh, a movie full of completely flawed characters i love it yeah there's been a little resurgence for neo-noirs lately um one that came out last year that i didn't get to see till recently was uh the the kid detective which uh which which wasn't bad but uh, yeah, Sean, I, I want to thank you so much for, for uh, giving me the opportunity to watch this movie. Um, you know, I love old Hollywood. Um, so, so any exposure I have to old Hollywood is great. Well, you're, you're, you're welcome, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up, we have 2000's Tom Hanks. Stay tuned. Are you the Wolfman? No, man, I'm not the wolf man. Well, I'm a young filmmaker and a real big fan. I, I just wanted to meet you. To protect my family and keep my job, I'll stay quiet. But don't think I don't know something's going on. And don't think I won't find out what it is. I'd say you got a real problem there, Earl. What are you talking about? What do you mean? Drugs. Yes, I believe it. I believe it. Because I want to believe it.
welcome back to In the Frame, and uh, we got another guest with us for this episode. Uh, this is uh, someone I've gone back with for a while that I actually met through Brent from the previous episode. This is uh, Todd Gilchrist, who's a, a film critic who's written for various outlets. And uh, Todd, would you like to plug anything right now as far as who you're writing for, what you're doing? Um, well, you know, I, I'm a freelance writer uh, working for Variety right now. I work for Fangoria. I do some stuff for a website called What to Watch. And um, probably my other sort of big outlet right now is um, a site called Entertainment Voice, although I primarily write about music for them. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I just juggle a bunch of different freelance stuff right now, but I've written for Nerdist in the past. I've written for, uh, the Hollywood reporter for Rolling Stone for entertainment weekly, a bunch of different places. That's awesome. I, you know, uh, one of the things I've always wanted to get, but for whatever reason I never have is a subscription to Fangoria. So how'd you, how'd you get, uh, that's sweet gig. Um, honestly, you know, I, I have written, um, for a long time for birth movies, death, uh, and you know all their various iterations, and one of their former contributors slash editors, uh, Phil Nobile, uh, brought me in. I guess it might have been in 2017 when I got laid off uh, for, for one of the five times in the last decade. Um, I, I got brought in, and uh, he asked me to do some some pieces for them. And since then, I've just contributed on an ongoing basis. Um, you know, no matter what my sort of outside um, other obligations were, you know, there were always great opportunities to write about horror. And so I've really enjoyed um, doing different stuff. There's a, there's an article I wrote in the new uh, issue that's out now that focuses on horror disco um, specifically kind of creating a, uh, a bit of a, a sketched history of this um, very, very specific uh, horror subgenre, which is sort of exactly what my, niches uh pretty much anything that's so specific and narrow that nobody's even heard of it until i start writing about it um and that's not a compliment to me but uh but it is uh that's something i've written about i've done um pieces that were about you know sort of just the year 1980 i've written um features i have uh one coming up in another uh, a feature coming up in a future issue which uh is going to be an interview with john carpenter which mainly uh i, I very specifically wanted to focus only on his music uh because he has a new album out uh that i think came out two weeks ago and you know i felt like uh for me uh having not only having interviewed him in the past but certainly as a voracious reader of features and and articles and events featuring him i feel like often people ask him a lot of questions about his older films that he kind of has either talked about or has been discussed on a commentary or a, you know, in a Q and a or something like that. And I was like, I really just want to sort of drill down into his creative process. And so I tried my best to sort of go a, a slightly different direction with that, but, um, but it's been really um, fun and rewarding to, to write for Fangoria because of course I'm a huge horror fan, but also um, just getting to, to write about a genre like that in a, you know, hopefully smarter, um, more academic way than just, you know, I like bloody stuff or, you know, I like scary stuff or whatever it is has been, uh, has been really gratifying. <clears throat> yeah. I bet Carpenter appreciated you going straight to the point with all that. Did you happen to engage him with any 
NBA questions to try to get him to loosen up a little. You bit. know, it's funny you mentioned that. I didn't ask him specifically about the NBA, but you know, I, I basically kind of in the in the asking him of questions, I mentioned that the first time I ever interviewed him was when I did a set visit for the remake of The Fog. And, you know, that was back in, what, 2006 or something like that. And, you know, we went in and I think I asked one of the first questions and he just didn't kind of, I mean, he gave me an answer, but he didn't really bite. Um, And that was because I had not really understood that he's, you know, a very smart, talented guy, but he's also this sort of cranky old guy who likes sitting in a Barker lounger and playing video games and watching (laughs) basketball. And so, you know, this time when I went uh, to do the interview, I, I... kind of went uh, by sort of asking him about that. I was like, you know, these are things that you talk about a lot. These are things that are clearly your sort of contemporary passions. And I was asking him how, if if at all, those things might stimulate him creatively. And he basically is like, not at all. Um, I mean, he ba- I mean, what, more or less what he said was that he, he liked them. Um, and now he sort of tries to coordinate and build his uh, his work schedule whenever he can around say watching basketball games. But, um, but you know, it was, it was thing, knowing things like that, that actually, in my opinion, made it a, an interesting interview because even though he wasn't going to give me like an oral history of the Lakers or some other, you know, basketball team or, or, or something like that, I do think that he seemed to appreciate that I wasn't just trying to um, go. So what was it like making Big Trouble in Little China? Or how did you, you know, how did you make um, Halloween in 1978? You know, it was, it was, it was trying to get more. <laughs> and this is why I didn't interview him. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, to me, it's, it's, you know, when you read, particularly when you read um, articles featuring people who are your heroes, of course, you want to um, ask about those things because you love them and you kind of want to convey that you're that you that you're enamored with the work that they did. Um, but you know, again, having done having done a couple of interviews um, with him over the years, I just realized that you know, as much as anything, it's a it's a it's a quick way to get him to kind of shut down. Um, and that doesn't mean that he gives extremely long academic answers about his work or anything, but, um, but engaging him on, on his level and recognizing that he's probably sat down at a Q and a for, at a screening of Halloween, you know, 400 times during his career and talked about some aspect of the theme, some aspect of Laurie Strode, some aspect of this or that, um, you know, just bypassing that stuff and then asking about this music, which is actually really terrific. And it's plenty interesting by itself mm-hmm. um, to get to actually ask him about that, even though, you know, he's, he's so intuitive the way he works now. He's like, yeah, I just sit down and we start making music and then something happens and then I'm done and it's and we release it, you know. So you're, you're not getting, um, you know, well, we created this intricate string, string arrangement, but you are getting things that are in my opinion, at least uh, somewhat unique and interesting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. The one thing I've kind of grasped on to that, I don't know, maybe not everyone has really picked up on is that he really seems to be motivated by the ability to collaborate with his family. It's like, he's got the musical project with his son and he's got the, the, the comic book company he does with his wife is it makes, makes completely sense. For sure. For sure. And also, you know, I mean, I think, 
Um, I think one of the appeals of, of a lot of the stuff that he's doing now is that it doesn't require a lot of overhead. It doesn't take a lot of uh, logistical work to get going. You know, I mean, he can just go in there and start laying these things down. He doesn't have to think about it. He doesn't have to, um, you know, he's not revisiting his legacy every time he's recording a track. Um, and so I can ask him about a song called Carpathian Darkness. And he's like, yeah, it just sounded like, Carpathian darkness to me, you know, and, and, and there's something really funny about that, but also the idea of him just kind of um, deciding that he wanted to make, you know, uh, a track called skeleton or whatever it's called and, and, and building something from that. Um, you know, I think that it speaks very much to the approach that he's always taken to some extent, but also um you know, it's a different kind of independence as an artist than he had when he was a filmmaker and he was, you know, responsible for sort of the slow moving um, production of a film where he's got to deal with all these other voices and all these other logistics to get something done. He can go into the studio. I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because the article is not published for another month or two, but, but basically he was like, yeah, we have another one that we're like working on. You know, he's put out three, volumes of these lost themes scores and there's a fourth more or less in the works i mean what that means and how soon he'll release it who knows but um but you know i mean it seemed to indicate that that he was not in any danger of running out of ideas and so you know you feel like it's a it's a real a very genuine new creative development for him that even feels different than the scores he was doing for other films much less for you know halloween kills and and this new iteration of the halloween franchise yeah i i can't wait to to open up my next fangoria and check that out um before we dig into tom hanks filmography though i just wanted to kind of preface you with a question that we can kind of get into more as we go along but um with any of these films in this decade, did you happen to be on any press junkets with Tom Hanks for any of them? You know what? Uh, I'm trying to think. I don't. I never did um, a press junket for any of these films. I will say I did a press. I went on a set visit for Inferno, the final film or the third film in the um, Da Vinci Code franchise. So I went to I went to Italy. Um, for that, which was the first time I'd ever been to Italy. It was really amazing. Um, he was really terrific. Um, and although it was as much as anything, it was more as, as, as exciting just to go to, I mean, we went to, to, um, Florence, excuse me. Uh, we went, to, we went to Florence for that. And, and that was really, um, that was really fun to get to do. I will the other than that, um, when, uh, the terminal was coming out, um, they shot that movie outside of Los Angeles and they built it in, uh, in a, in basically a warehouse. They had built this entire recreation of, uh, of the airport in New York. And what I remember very, very vividly was we got on a, a shuttle bus here in Los Angeles, drove to this place, which was probably a good hour and 45 minutes outside of LA, uh, if not further. We get out there, we walk around, we're walking around in this airplane terminal, which was a exact recreation of, of, uh, of the terminal uh, in New York. And we walk around and then we get to the top of this sort of one of the levels where, where uh, it's been designed and built. And Tom Hanks walks up and he greets us all. 
And he's like, you know, I'm so glad that you guys could be here. And like, I'm so happy. And the thing is that he flew in uh, on a helicopter. He didn't take a shuttle. He didn't take a bus or any, or any kind of vehicle like we did. And he get, he got to the end and he basically just gave us like a five to 10 minute introduction to being in this place um, where they had recreated this. And he goes, now you guys have fun driving back to LA on your bus. And he laughed this bellowing laugh of amusement at the fact that uh, <laughs> us scrub journalists were going to be having to, you know, get back on a two or, or, or more hour bus ride back to LA after getting, you know, five to 10 minutes uh, FaceTime with Tom Hanks. Um, and, and it was, and it was not, uh, it, it was, I would say, I would never suggest that it was in any way sincerely mocking of us, but he certainly was having a little bit of fun at our expense. And I thought that was pretty great. And I just, I always remember that. And, 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 I, and the funny thing is I didn't see the movie for a long time after that. Um, but I just always remember that. And I was like, I was like, wow. I was like, Tom Hanks is a real jerk in person. Um, but, but, but it made me like it more, honestly. So, yeah, that actually kind of makes sense to me because I actually revisited a Charlie Rose interview with him when he was doing that Broadway show that Nora Ephron wrote. And, um, he was, Charlie Rose asked him about this article that Entertainment Weekly did. Um, basically, you know, it was a pretty much overall praise article just you know stating how he's the every man in hollywood and can pretty much get made whatever he wants to and hanks was just like well i don't know about that uh charlie uh it sure hasn't been able to get me off these press junkets at all <laughs> so it just kind of <laughs> made me feel like he wasn't you know too crazy about having to do those well, you know i mean I, I will say before we get into like his actual filmography i i think there is um, you know, a, to some degree, a a bit of a, a misnomer of of. I mean, I think that it's sor sort of true, but I mean, I don't think that he's quite um, the everyman that um, he's sort of been branded as. Um, and in fact, you know, given the fact that his career started with all these um, comedies, to me was really. Um, it, it to me r remains really telling. And you, when you watch him and you see him, you know, appearing on Saturday Night Live, I mean, not just uh, David S. Pumpkins, but I mean, like, like you know, the the celebrity Jeopardy where he gets his hand stuck in the jar with a giant pickle. And, you know, it's like he's willing to be a jerk. He's willing to be an <laughs> idiot. He's really willing to, like, go for broke in a way that I feel like is speaks very much to his versatility as an actor, whether it's whether it's a dramatic role or something comedic. Um, that said, I, I have for a long time held maintained that I think that a there should be some fantastic like I don't know if it's a con artist movie I don't know what it is but there's got to be some kind of comedy that he could do where it's him and Jim Carrey I think that they would make like an amazing duo for like a just a balls out like raunchy you know vintage era Farrelly Brothers kind of comedy or something I think he would I think they would be really amazing yeah I, I would love that <laughs> Okay, well, with that being said, let's just go ahead and kick it off with uh, his first film of the 2000s, Castaway. Wilson! Wilson! I'm sorry! 
Yeah, Todd, go ahead and, and give us. Sure, you know uh, it's funny. I I showed this this movie not too long ago uh, to my wife um, for for whatever reason she hadn't seen it, and so we sat down one night and I was like, I think you're really gonna like this, and we started watching it, um, and I loved it. Uh, when it came out in 2000. Um, and I think it really holds up strong. I think it overplays a little bit of the mm-hmm. stuff at the end. I mean, I think it's good that it spends the amount of time that it does to sort of explore what happens after he gets off this this island. Um, certainly his physical transformation uh, in that movie, I think is pretty remarkable. Um, but I but I think that um, I think that it evidences sort of in a way, sort of the platonic ideal of, uh, of the, of his, of his stardom, which is that, um, you know, he can be a guy who sort of flirts at the edges of being a little bit more demanding or, or whatever it is. Cause I, I, you know, at the beginning it is very, he's very driven, um, and all these kinds of things, but at the same time, he's so lovable. I mean, even on the Island when he's alone, like he, you know, you don't give, there's not a moment where you, he's even being a jerk, while he's by himself, uh, which I find to be unbelievable because I feel like we're all sometimes jerks when we're mad about something or we're frustrated or whatever it is. Uh, and certainly I feel like being stranded on a desert Island by yourself, um, is, is a good reason to be a jerk. Uh, if, if you're pissed off. Um, but I think Mm -hmm. it's a, I think it's an amazing movie. Um, you know, I think that, uh, I think the Zemeckis does a great job with it. And, um, you know, again, I think my only thing to me is that the movie, is so even handed in trying to not sort of vilify anybody, uh, particularly at the end and, and sort of give everybody maybe somewhat reasonable, but, but I I think it takes pains to make sure everybody's still likable and that everything that they do is totally okay. Um, that, that it, it, it lacks a little bit of an edge, even, even though I do think it's a terrific movie. Mm -hmm. I thought it was a great moral about, the transformation of a man, not just physically, but of course, mentally. Um, you know, I, I was, I, I hadn't seen this movie in a while, but I was with you where I thought that the ending was a little yeah. bit too gratuitous, but, uh, you know, uh, Tom Hanks as a FedEx driver in the, or a FedEx worker in the beginning, he's definitely by the clock. There's only one way to do things. And then when he discovers a world where there's, you know, there's only, one goal, and that is to survive, where, where uh, basically he has to keep this focus. He sees uh, what a terrible life it is. And when he comes back, you know, there's that, there's that wonderful scene at the end where, where he's, uh, you know, faced with these different roads, these different choices. And, and uh, you know, he's, in a sense, kind of caught up to the rest of the world uh, in discovering that he has a choice. He's he's definitely uh, fully human. Sure. Put it. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, Bob Zemeckis did this film and another film the same year, What Lies Beneath, which he had uh, a lot of the same crew on. He had uh, cinematographer Don Blind Fury Burgess on cinematography, and Alan Silvestri did the score, which he actually won the, the Grammy for his mm. Castaway score. Um, 
and also ironically the the trailers for both of these films um i don't know if you if either of you recall seeing them before seeing this movie but they both give away a, a <laughs> shitload of the movie <laughs> which which is pretty controversial well what do you guys think about that well i mean it's not really a movie that that has a surprise ending sort of put i mean it's not it, it it, so you so like, you don't think that him actually leaving the island and being reunited with his wife is a spoiler? It's Hollywood. It's Hollywood. So, <laughs> so he's going to leave the island. He, I mean, he's not going to like commit cannibalism or or. Like, now that would be interesting. Uh, Tom Hanks or cannibalism. <laughs> that would yeah. be interesting. Although, although I did read there was an early draft of the script where where uh, where he has to fight his conscience. So basically, he has an evil Tom Hanks. That is telling him uh, what to do on the island. So I would have loved to see that cut. You know, it's no big surprise that he's going to get off the island. No big surprise at all. But it could but, have been, though, Andy. That's the point. You know, it I mean, I would been. say, I would say that you know, it's funny to think of of trailers that you know, quote unquote, spoil the movie. Um, uh, you know, that that come from the the '90s. Um, and you know, you mentioned Brent and Brent and I. Uh, uh, who I love, you know, he and I've had numerous conversations about trailers and the history of um, movie promotions like that. And, you know, in the, in the sixties um, in the fifties uh, and even into the seventies, the trailers would, first of all, that was before they even had the restriction of having to make them only two and a half minutes. Um, but they would, but the trailers would literally show every aspect of the movie from start to finish. I mean, it would, you know, cut from one to the other and they were often really clumsily done so you were basically walking into a movie that you know theoretically you you were experiencing um the longer version of the trailer because you were seeing the opening scene you were seeing middle scenes you were seeing surprises and you were seeing the ending um and i think that you know i mean certainly i feel like it's a good thing for for um, audiences to be um, protected as much as possible from the surprises in a movie. And, and certainly in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, there were fewer um, shocker sequences in movies that that were you know going to catch people so off guard. I think just storytelling uh, was ex- function that way. Um, but um, but I, I you know I'll say I, I I vaguely remember the Castaway trailer. I don't really remember what lies beneath. Honestly, I, and I, that's a movie that I'm not a huge fan of. I, I would be interested maybe in checking that out to see if I felt differently about it now because I feel like it telegraphs its own suspenseful twists and turns so badly just from watching it that that it would be impossible not to sort of um, <laughs> play those things out on the trailer. But um, but I mean, I would say that you know now it's it's one of those things that's kind of. Um, it's it's more like a fun footnote to to its history than than necessarily it's something that I think matters in the long run. If that makes sense, uh, I I uh, also want to give props to the um, film crash scene. So so uh, you know I'm definitely definitely one of the best film crash scenes I would argue ever. Uh, my favorite, of course, is the 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 crash in Alive. Uh, but I, I like that movie for other reasons as well. But but uh, yeah, it's great. And <clears throat> honestly, I would say that uh, from his run to big, his his big run to big, you know, probably in my eyes would would end with Cast Away. So this was the last time that Hanks was nominated for uh, uh, Best Actor uh, until uh, 2019. Um, really, you know, his, his next two movies were were also great, but 
it can be argued that he was also kind of overshadowed in those. So this is kind of like the last big classic Tom Hanks role where he he's completely in the driver's sure, seat. Sure, I would agree. I would agree with that to to some extent for sure. I, th- I think that you know I, I think more than anything the the what changed in sort of two thousand is the way that movies were more so than the way his stardom was. Um, and, uh, which I think is why, you know, you start looking at, uh, the latter half of the two thousands and, you know, his acting projects were fewer and further between, um, and his sort of producing acting, um, uh, and directing projects were, you know, becoming more plentiful. I wanted to add one other thing about the, the point of the trailers is that Zemeckis was actually questioned about that at the time. Cause it was a, a little bit of controversy he was asked what he felt about the the trailer revealing as much as it did and he basically was quoted as saying that um i don't know about trailers giving away too much about films but i relate more to mcdonald's and i think mcdonald's is great because it uh Mm. you know what you're going to get when you when you order there bingo see that yeah i mean a little bit yeah for sure (laughs) <laughs> it makes me sad, but but at the same time, you know, it's it's like you said, Sean. It's how you tell the story, right? So so it can be it can be a familiar story, but but I think it's done very well, and I think there was a point to this. It's not just a man gets stranded on an island and leaves. It's about his uh, his mental growth and discovering that there's life beyond uh, routine. Well, I'll tell you another thing that kind of makes me a little sad about the the state of American culture at the time. And I don't know how much we've evolved since then. But apparently, um, after this film was released, um, the the job application for FedEx went up uh, wow. 30 <laughs> <laughs> percent. So... I'm going to save my rant for the sad state of American culture for uh for, for for a few movies later down uh i'm, I'm gonna save sure. it for when it gets bad <laughs> all right well let's uh let's move along to what i'm gonna say is god it's a close call i'm gonna probably just go ahead and say that this is probably my my favorite film of his from this decade and that's uh, road to perdition i'm glad that you Well, you know, I mean, no, truthfully, I you know, I, I, I sort of happily defer to you guys um, on this because it's funny, you know, you mentioned I was sort of looking, I was waiting for you to say Road to Perdition, but also um, Catch Me If You Can is not only one of my favorite of his performances, it's one of my favorite Spielberg movies. And I watch it, uh, I feel like I watch it at least once a year, um, you know, in a way, w- whether it's at Christmas or um, it's on cable all the time. And so I'll just catch it. Um, and, and it's, and, but I do, I always really liked, um, Road to Perdition. I mean, you know, if we're talking about actors taking risks, I think there's, I think there's some, there's some similarities between this and, um, and Charlie Wilson's war, which obviously we'll talk about a little bit later, um, where you are theoretically playing a character, um, who, who runs the risk of alienating sort of your core audience by making them 
darker, more violent, more dangerous, more unlikable than than we've grown accustomed to. Um, and I think it's and I think that Road to Perdition is a really terrific movie. Um, I also think that it's a movie that that um, takes fewer risks than um, than maybe we thought it did at the time, um, just because uh, the character, irrespective of his profession, is so I think sympathetic. Um, uh, like even in his sort of the setup, the backstory of his existence um, and and his eventual sort of softening in the development of his ro- of his relationship with his son, I think um, kind of just paves the way for him to become um, sort of the Tom Hanks that we that we know and love by the end of it. Um, I don't think that takes anything away from his performance, but I do think that it's um, a movie that that I think at the time was really more. Um, surprising because it seemed like such an outlier, but um, to me, I think it's much less so. Yeah, I, I definitely have something to say about that, but I'm going to go ahead and let Andy <laughs> uh, say his piece first. If you're, yeah, of course. Well, yeah, I'm with. I'm definitely with Sean. This is my favorite uh, Tom Hanks uh, movie of the decade. Uh, the reason I said Castaway is his last classic role is because uh, Paul Newman. I think stole the show with this one. Of course, it was his last role and uh, his last nominee. For, or, I'm sorry, his only nominee for Best Supporting Actor at the Academy Awards. But what I really love, what what, what I think is uh, really funny about this film when you talk about it is, uh, you know, no one talks about what perdition means. You know, it's just this big word that's on the poster. But of course, you know, look it up and it's kind of like the the road to internal damnation but in the movie uh perdition represents like uh sort of of like uh you know a change of life uh you know grace deliverance and uh, it's where tom hanks is trying to take his son so his son doesn't end up like him and of course you know on the other side you have uh paul newman and his son who who uh you know he his son is He's, he continually walks all over his son, and of course, his son, uh, you know, resents that, and, and you know, ends up embezzling money uh, from from Paul Newman. But uh, yeah, it's just a great movie about a father and son relationship, trying to escape a old life, and uh, just the way it's shot. Uh, you know, the I know that this this won an Academy Award for Best Cinematography. Uh, this was at Conrad Hall's last Oscar. Uh, so it's just a great movie overall. Yeah, well, it's interesting you bring up Conrad Hall because that was the point I was going to. Oh, oh sorry. Uh, no, no, that's fine. I was, but no, Conrad Hall actually played a big role in how this movie turned out. Um, and yes, this was his last film. Uh, the, the graphic novel it was based on was a lot more gratuitous and a lot more violent, and uh, the character that Tom Hanks played was actually a lot more talkative but it was conrad hall who really pushed for this to be a more um subdued interpretation and he really wanted the the nonverbal simplicity of films like uh pat, pat garrett and billy the kid and once upon a time in america and even films of, of kurosawa's to kind of be an influence on it and i think that's why hank's character became a lot more uh, subtle and less verbal, which I think 
really works for this film. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Lone Wolf and Cub too. Th- those movies. Yeah, and um, and the the source material was was based on uh, a real mobster, uh, John Looney, and his family, which was changed the film for obvious copyright issues and whatnot. And yeah, have you guys actually seen um, any of the the Lone Wolf and Cub films? I've seen one. I, I honestly forget which one it was. And uh, I was going to pick that up during the Criterion sale. But of course, that, that for whatever reason, got really blown <laughs> and up. And I haven't, so, uh, I haven't uh, to find. seen them. I know it. Uh, I certainly know the, uh, the the comic book source material as well. But um, but I don't. But that was not, that's not a film series. I know that well. The surprising thing to me was that Jude Law's character, uh, you know, I've never read the graphic novel of Road to Perdition. But mm. uh, Jude Law's character was not in the graphic novel. And honestly... He was the most comic book, comic booky character of all in there. I would have definitely picked. Yeah, I mean, like you know, that, I think so. that I, I would just just to to touch on that a little bit more. I mean, I would say that I feel like to some extent, you know, they the the film kind of feels. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go as far as calling both of those performances uh, stunt casting, um, but I do think that there's an extent of of of, of testing. Um, the waters. I mean, when you have a guy like Jude Law, who certainly in that moment, I mean, you know, just a year, uh, a year before he was in AI, where he literally was playing like the most beautiful pleasure robot uh, you can imagine. Yeah, you know, you have him doing Big that, and then the next, you know, and then the next year he's shaving his head and and looking sort of gross and uh, greasy, and and uh, you know, is this bad guy? And I think that. Um, I think that's interesting. I also think I, I think it's interesting in retrospect. Um, it's easy to forget that Daniel Craig was um, played played um, you know uh, the son that you were talking about, um, and you know because that's one of those things that I think I had almost like completely blocked out of my head until you know until a couple of years later I was like oh yeah that that is where I've seen him before you know um, and I I think it's. Um, it's probably the most vivid introduction um, prior to playing Bond that I feel like um, uh, mainstream audiences had with him. And I think he gives a, I think he does a good job. He's, you know, he gives that some real dimensionality that, that uh, longing that, that manifests itself in all these, you know, terrible choices. Well, when this was in production, it was actually rumored to be a remake of Lone Wolf and Cubs sort of vengeance, which was actually, re-edited into Shogun Assassin, which was my first introduction of um, sure. Lone Wolf and Cub because of Kill Bill. And uh, and I will say that I, I do definitely see the, the similarities. I've never read any of the, the mangas or anything like that, but as, as far as the overall beats of the story, I can definitely see why those uh, Absolutely. conclusions would be drawn. Mm-hmm. It's 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 definitely a movie. It sounds weird, but yeah, it's definitely a movie to watch on Father's Day. It's it's all about you know uh, the bonds doing something right for your son. Uh, you know, it's 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 a great movie. Uh, I was really surprised to read in the trivia that Sam Mendes turned down directing a Beautiful Mind, K Pax, and the Shipping News so he could uh, direct Road to Perdition. Well, I would say that was probably a, a, a better choice for him, and in, in, in all three cases, quite frankly. I mean, not that a, a Beautiful Mind is a <laughs> yeah. fine movie, but but um, but you know, he made the right choice. He did. I I like it. You know, nothing against Beautiful Mind, but I I do 
like wrote the production sure. better than I would that. agree with that. Did uh, Stanley Tucci's performance leave an impression on either of you? I know he was really hesitant about taking the role in this movie because he was afraid of being stereotyped at the time for doing too many gangster films. But I think <laughs> that it definitely was a, a, a turn for, for him that uh, brought him to some really great it's, roles. It, I would say, life. you know, as a person who, who loves Big Night uh, to this day, uh, you know, and who knew him from certainly many earlier roles like that. Um, it wasn't one that I felt like was the, the straw that broke the camel's back where there was no coming back from or anything, you know, um, you know, I mean, more than anything, it feels like that was a moment where he was transitioning into a different kind of adult. I mean, he, a different kind of a, uh, like a, a grown up role and, um, and, but I, but it wasn't something that I felt like was more uh, stereotypical or 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 damagingly um, stereotypical in comparison to other roles that he played. No, it wasn't damaging at all. It was a you know a very respectable role, and I think he fit in very well with. Uh, I don't know. It, it the film doesn't really have a classic feel, but at the same time, it does. It's it's hard to describe. So um, it's a very sure. unique feel of the film. All right, well, that's going to bring us to uh, Catch Me If You Can that, that Todd alluded to. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, so. um, like I said, I, I've watched dozens of times. It was it was a movie that I um, covered uh, in 2002. I don't, I, there, I don't think I ever did a junket or anything like that, but I, I definitely uh, remember reviewing and, and, and seeing it um, in the theater like as a, as a critic at the time. Um, and it's a movie that I, you know, again, I really love. I think um, John Williams' score is, it's a really unique score for John Williams um, um, that I think he does a fantastic job with. I think um, the dynamic between Leonardo DiCaprio and Hanks is fantastic. And I think that, you know, to me, this is a, a great use of uh, Tom Hanks's charisma to, again, to test boundaries in a, in a, to me, a really more pointed way um, where it's not just the opposite of your expectation. It's the idea of, you know, how do you define um, who this character is, Carl Hanratty, um, and, and the way that he is, um, you know, a complete dick that he likes to antagonize this guy. He also wants to catch him. Um, and he also, you know, he wants to protect mm-hmm. him to some extent, you know, and there's, and there's a really interesting, um, it, it, thing that I think Hanks brings this paternalistic quality to the character that suggests that like, you know, it doesn't mean that I, I'm going to let you go, but, um, but you know, what you do can be forgiven if you pay for your crimes. Um, while this kid is essentially just repeatedly looking for some boundaries to be set for him. Um, and I think that Hanks embodies that in a really um, vivid way. And I think the movie's, you know, capturing of the time and place, you know, it, it's brisk. It's like a spy movie. It's like, you know, I mean, it's got all these sort of clever elements to it. It's beautiful. Um, I will say, you know, this was sort of one of the points when I started um, questioning whether I feel like, um, Steven Spielberg needs to continue working with Janice Kaminsky, who I think is um, not a good collaborator with him always um, because of his way of um, blowing everything out. Um, but I think it's a fantastic movie and I love, I love the movie and I love watching it. And I think that uh, Hanks and uh, DiCaprio both are great in it. The way I saw it, it was kind of like a passing of the torch movie. Uh, you know, DiCaprio uh, was 
big up and coming name at this time. And, and, uh, you know, he, of course, became a very, uh, you know, not that he wasn't before, but he was like the very, like it respectable actor. And, uh, you know, I, for good reason, he, he, uh, definitely overshadows Hank's character. Um, not to say that Hank's does a poor job, but of course, DiCaprio is the, the, um, you know, the main character in this. And, um, I, I thought it worked very well. They have pretty good chemistry together with, like you said, the whole, uh, paternalistic quality that, uh, Hanks has for, uh, DiCaprio's character. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this was definitely a, a, a statement, I think for, for Tom Hanks, because everyone would have expected him to not choose a, a supporting role at this point in his career, but he definitely showed that, uh, if, uh, a good role is a good role, no matter the size. And uh, and and this wasn't even um, Hanks wasn't even the the first choice for the role. In fact, uh, before Spielberg came on board, it was uh, Gore Verbinski that was supposed to be making this film, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it ended up getting uh, delayed because uh, for a few reasons. One of the reasons is uh, the original. <laughs> actor for Hank's role was actually um, I just had a, a brain bubble. Now what it was was is that Leonardo DiCaprio was was filming Gains in New York and, and that was pushing a delay on Garberbinski's movie and then uh, um, Hank's character was being played by James Gandolfini who, who ended oh, wow. up leaving the project because of that so um, mm. were you at all familiar with the, the real facts that this movie's not really i mean you know it was one of those things where i i certainly um you know i I find now more than ever when i watch it when i go back and rewatch these movies i'm like frantically googling uh wikipedia entries to see i'm like did that really happen and how did that work and whatever um but i didn't know it well but of course i knew it was based at least partially on a true story um and i think you know but i to me you know it's it's that's not a uh, a lure for me with the movie in general. Um, I think it's a pretty, I think it's such a great movie. It doesn't, you know, it's like that only adds to its sort of veneer, but it doesn't, I don't find it to be an essential um, quality to, to its, to its uh, goodness, I guess. Yeah. I know that, uh, you know, the, the real, um, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio's real character, the Frank Abagnale, uh, he was really worried that, uh, you know, his story wouldn't be done just uh, justice. Um, I, I know that the rights to this movie were sold in 1981 and, and or 1980. And uh, Dustin Hoffman was his name was attached to the project for a while, too. He was going to play him. And um, and uh, Tom Hanks's character doesn't even exist in real life. Uh, he's an amalgamation of a lot of characters because uh, the real FBI agent who caught huh. him didn't want to have his name on there. So uh, there's a little bit of fiction in there. And, and uh, I don't remember the exact quote, but I know that uh, he said that um, Abigail said that 80% of what happens in the movie is true. And uh, surprisingly, the book was out of print when the movie came out and uh, it came back into print, but they uh, removed the final chapter because I guess the real ending to it was uh, so much different than the films. I'm not sure what that huh. was, but they took that out. Well, yeah, there's a scene in this film where Hank's character, Carl, is walking DiCaprio's character, Abigail, through the airport. And uh, 
he's you know it, it's after Hank's characters kind of tricked him into turning himself in and uh, he starts asking him you know well is it really true do you have a daughter this and that and uh, you know Hank's, Hank's characters answering him completely honest to everything and uh, you know completely admits to exaggerating certain things and uh, he asks him you know um, why, why is it that you would want to convince yourself that your your daughter's still a child and uh, Hank's character replies sometimes it's easier living the lie which kind of gives this a whole uh, a different texture of of being you know um, you know there it, it being you know where we're not everything is is completely sure. on the on the surface and it's just kind of mm-hmm. you know breaks the the fourth wall there as far as the storytelling goes mm-hmm. um, like a kind of meta textual story you no know, the exactly the also you know there's the, the the touching scene where he calls uh carl on on christmas eve and you know he's he's very lonely and vulnerable and uh you know they start having this kind of man-to-man conversation um you know, just kind of jabbing over trivial things like the Yankees and, you know, just really kind of giving each other company. But then, you know, the irony is, is that the the guy that all this is based on was just flat out like, no, that would never happen. I would never be in touch with the FBI. I didn't want them to know where the hell I was. So it just kind of tells you mm-hmm. um, what what kind of makes for for good hollywood storytelling and why you know things are often changed for better or worse of course. to tell a more engaging story i guess mm-hmm. yeah one change i'm glad they made was uh they, they they included abigail's father in the in the movie more which of course is uh christopher walken i i love christopher walken and uh you know the real abigail never saw his father after he left home but uh spielberg wanted to focus on that connection that he had and you know you kind of see see uh Abingdale using all those things or or you know those those metaphors that his father taught him in his uh in his uh scheme of grifting people absolutely so, um, yeah, i mean he gives a, a fantastic choice. performance another thing interesting too is that the the man who adapted the the screenplay wrote this and also wrote the the terminal for spielberg which we'll get to a little bit later which I think are, you know, uh, both really good. But uh, other than, than those two films, he's primarily known for uh, writing the sequel to Speed and the sequel to Rush Hour. So um, I'm not exactly sure why he was chosen to to adapt this film, but but having those two on his, his resume, I don't know... <laughs> Do you see where I'm going? <laughs> well, it's well, funny that you say that, joke, that so. you suggest that that those are the things that he's best known for when there is no chance that I will ever not only forget, but forgive him for writing Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Um, you know, I mean, this is a guy who his <laughs> oh, breakthrough his break, really. I mean, he did Speed 2, he did Rush Hour 2, but he did Catch Me If You Can, which to me was the break. Then he did The Terminal. He did The Last Shot, which I actually saw. Um, and I, I do, and I did cover that movie back in the day. Um, but then he wrote Rush Hour Three. Then he did 
um, uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And, you know, and then after that, he did a Pirates of the Caribbean movie. And, um, you know, he is like, it was just one of those things where like it, it to me, it only evidences this bizarre, um, you know, tr- thing that happens in Hollywood, which is, um, you know, people just don't measure how good the quality is necessarily of something if it's successful, um, you know, I mean, meaning like commercially successful. I mean, you know, I don't have anything against the rush hour movies, for example, but um, you know, those are not brilliantly written films. And so this is a guy who, you know, like a lot of people, I think in, you know, the two thousands and even the nineties, you know, they're writing, they're doing one, you know, you have people like Akiva Goldsman who, are writing movies that make money hand over fist, but they're not movies that necessarily are great. Um, or, and in fact are frequently critically derided. And so, you know, it's interesting. I mean, it's just funny that you would, that you think that like, I mean, speed two and, and, and rush hour two are, are not great. I would say rush hour two is about a hundred times better than speed two, but, um, but, but like, you know, uh, this, I would say is by far one of the best things that he has ever written. Um, you know, depending, assuming that, you know, it was not just a matter of he got credited for this because of course that's another element in Hollywood, which is that, you know, the number of people who might be thrown at something. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if um, Spielberg called in like Steven Zalian to polish up this script, but his contributions were not significant enough to, to win him a screen credit, et cetera. Yeah. Fair enough. Anything else you want to add, Andy? No, uh, no, I, I, I enjoy this movie a lot. Um, definitely one, not one of my favorites of Hanks during this period, but yeah, it was, it's for a sure, great movie for overall. Sure. Good popcorn movie. Now, but now we're getting into some troublesome territory, in my opinion. All right. Well, so, yeah, you <laughs> yeah. know, I just want to preface this by saying that I'm I'm not normally a, like such a negative person, but just watching some of these movies is just I I I don't know, like just coming <laughs> up on this. It, well, yeah, we'll get there. All right, well, before we dig into the, the Lady Killers, um, Andy, I know you're not really familiar with uh, the Alien Studios films. Uh, I mean, uh, only passingly. About you. Um, I mean, I never saw the original uh, Lady Killers, but I certainly, I, I know Kind Hearts and Coronets pretty well. Um, and and certainly, um, I mean, I'm familiar with it enough to, to mention it, but, um, but I think this movie has enough qualities on its own that, um, that distinguish it from its predecessors, um, that, uh, that there's stuff to talk about. Yeah. This, this is definitely an interesting, um, one. I, I, I will say one thing I didn't mention when we were talking about road to perdition is one thing that, that Tom Hanks brought up to Sam Mendes is that he really wanted the, the violence toned down in the movie. And uh, so we, we know where Tom Hanks stands on that, but I, maybe Tom Hanks doesn't have as much of a problem with foul language because apparently um, the lady killers <laughs> drops the, the F-bomb 89 times. Yeah, there's like, there's like nine, <laughs> 90 fucks, a lot of fucks. Well, I will... <laughs> uh, well, I was just going to say, well, yeah, I will tell was, you that um, so sorry, not only do I think this is like, like a aggressively bad movie, I think it's by far the the Coen brothers worst movie um i remember being very excited thinking about i mean this is funny because you know of course i i told you before i, I was i would love to see tom hanks in like a total balls out comedy 
And I understand that this movie is meant to be a total balls out comedy. Um, but I will say that I think that the Coen brothers instincts on this movie are kind of woefully out of sync um, as, as comedians, as storytellers, um, you know, it's it, the, the Coen brothers, you know, have always, I think been um, irreverent about the characters, not, not just the story uh, that they're telling or even the genre in which they're um, working, but um, to their own characters. I mean, you know, they are unafraid to make fun of characters that they clearly love and they created. Um, and I feel like this movie is so um, mean spirited that um, it's just kind of oppressive um, as, as a viewing experience. And I also, I mean, I think that, you know, you can have, um, you know, Marlon Wayans in this movie and he can be as fil as foul and filthy as a character as they created him. But it's, it's kind of crazy to think about, um, you know, two white filmmakers writing and directing this movie and looking at it and going this, that's a character that they would want to put in a movie. Um, of course that was 2004, but I mean, like now I think it would be kind of unimaginable. Um, and I think that, um, you know, it's mm -hmm. not just that, um, Tom Hanks is, is sort of underwhelming as this sort of buffoonish super criminal genius character. But I just think like the ensemble doesn't work. I think like it's, you know, it's, it's attempts at, at humor, um, you know, are, they're just kind of like, really one-dimensional you know you have um you know you have the the character with ibs you know and that's that's like his essentially his defining is jk simmons in this movie um and you know and it's like it's not even that like oh they're mean yeah. to this nice old lady it's like i don't know she's not really a pleasant character for me either you know it's like everybody in the movie is so sort of contemptible that um that i just don't find it to be um, a particularly enjoyable experience. And, you know, it's funny. I have, co I have colleagues who they, they will tease me a little bit and they'll be like, you know, you don't like things that are, that are too mean. Um, and certainly everything that I just said bears that out to some extent, but, but I do like humor that is, that can be mean spirited in a fun way. Um, or, or, you know, just really sort of goes for it in a moment where it seems like it might be inappropriate um, as a juxtaposition in a story. But to me, this movie is just so misanthropic from start to finish. Um, and I just don't like these characters and they kind of all tread some line of being uh, like a, a stereotype or a cliche. And I think that it kind of kills the movie for me, but I, I, I turn to you guys for a rebuttal. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get no rebuttal from me. I mean, I, yeah. Like, I don't know what Tom Hanks was trying to channel in his performance. Like, Colonel Sanders, Foghorn Leghorn, uh, you know, who knows what he's trying to perform. But he just plays this awful Southern stereotype that just, you know, is just, I, for lack of a better word, just so lame. Uh, trying to be so verbose at the same time. Uh, and and I know that the whole joke is that they're they're a ragtag group of criminals, but... Yeah, they're, they are just uh, like awful stereotypes. And um, I, I, I really don't know what to say about this movie. It's not clever. Uh, you know, the, the, some of the Marlon Whalen scenes got a few chuckles out of me. But uh, 
just just the way that at the end, like all the criminals are dispatched in the exact same way. Uh, nothing clever. It just it just reeks of laziness to me. Yeah, I don't know if I would go that far. Um, <laughs> the, the, this film definitely had a a troubled production history. It uh, went back to to 1998. Uh, Robert Harling was originally supposed to make it. He's the screenwriter for Steel Magnolias and Soap Dish, so you'd imagine how different that would have been. Um, the the Coen brothers were never intended to direct this film. It was actually their cinematographer Barry Sonnenfeld who ended up dropping out of the project, and they ended up taking over. Um, so I'm not exactly sure. I'm not making any excuses or assumptions as far as what kind of transitions the screenplays went through. We can obviously only go by the final product. In regards to Tom Hanks' portrayal of his character, I would say that he, to this day, as far as I know, has never mm. seen the original 55 film and avoided it on purpose because he didn't want to at all be connected to Alec Guinness's portrayal of the character. Um, and I don't know. For, for me, I feel like the, the, the Coen brothers are, are usually very intact with what they're doing, and this may have been a misfire for them, but I would never, ever call um, what they do as lazy. I would definitely say that this got lost in translation somehow. There, there, there's definitely some some interesting creative choices. I was going to ask you, Todd, because I know, like, you know, you're you're definitely the person who would pick up on things like this. Did, did you revisit this film recently, or are you just kind of? I mean, going you know, I it's funny. I I haven't. Before? I watched part of it um, recently, but I did not watch the whole thing again. And so, you know, I mean. I, I, and the thing okay. was that I think when I sat down to watch it more recently, I was like, well, maybe I'll get, maybe, maybe I will reevaluate. It was on cable or whatever it was. So I started watching it and I just realized that I was like, I don't know, this is just, you know, it's, it, like, I, I, I mean, God knows, I, I, I can watch a dumb crook movie. I don't, that doesn't bother me at all. I'm not, you know, and I, and I don't, certainly like, I, I can enjoy watching a movie where like a self important, um, you know, guy uh, certainly repeatedly gets his comeuppance, but um, but you know, it's it's an it was just a movie to me that I I again is so um, on uh, beyond the level of mean spiritedness of um, of the Cohen brothers, who I feel like they will do that occasionally. It's funny, I like as we started talking about this, I started thinking about how you know this was the movie that they made after they made Intolerable Cruelty, which I believe is the only movie of theirs. Um, which they did not write. Uh, I mean, they were they credited for the screenplay of that, but these other guys, um, uh, Robert Ramsey and Matthew Stone, were sort of the original screenwriters of that movie. And that movie feels more to me like a Coen Brothers movie than this one does. Um, and that one, even though it may be approximating some of the the rhythms and the and the sort of details in a in a, a Coen Brothers movie. Um, that it, because they didn't write it to me, that feels more authentic than this one. This one just feels like they're they are starting from a place where um, it's just as aggressively mean as possible, and then just digging in from there. Whereas, like you'll watch again, uh, Intolerable Cruelty, and you have a character like Wheezy Joe who you know ends up literally shooting himself in the face, um, and and to me, that's a much funnier, um, much darker. 
uh, and, 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 but, but a lighter kind of experience than something like this, where you're just watching like Marlon Wayans use profanity relentlessly, um, uh, for, you know, two hours or whatever. Honestly, as, as far as their filmography goes, I think that this film has most in common with burn after reading as far as overall tone and, uh, certain character choices in the script and things like that. This is the one thing, the reason why I asked you if you'd seen it recently, though, is because one thing I thought you might appreciate is that you remember how Mrs. Munson's constantly going to yeah, the yeah, sheriff's yeah. office and complaining about the, the neighbor's music. Uh, well, when she's doing that, she's she's constantly repeating lyrics that she hears um, in the music, and uh, she's um, referring to a a song from a tribe <laughs> called Quest called uh, I Love My Wallet and El Segundo. Oh, for sure. I mean, I definitely remember that from <laughs> so now that you mentioned it. But, that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, but but also, quite frankly, you know, to some extent, that kind of speaks to exactly how out of touch that movie was. I mean, I Left My Wallet and El Segundo was on their first album that came out in 1989. Um, I mean, it'd be one thing if they were, if they, if, if it was even like a ward tour or something like that, you would think that that would be a more contemporary um, reference. But I mean, that's sort of like going like, you know, you have these, this, I keep hearing these rap songs like uh, hip hop to the hippie to the hippity hop. And it's like, that's not a contemporary reference and probably not some, I mean, you know, I would, <laughs> I would not credit, um, uh, Gawain, the character, certainly that, um, that, uh, Marlon Wayans plays for being a hip hop classicist, you know, I mean, that doesn't seem likely to me. This movie seemed a lot, I don't know. I, I could have just been reading too much into this, but it seems like it was trying to recreate the magic of a brother. We're out that we're art thou, um, kind of that whole ensemble comedy, but, uh, I don't know. It could have just been that they had just released four movies in five years, but it just seems like, you know, the Coen brothers definitely <laughs> needed a break or I don't know, they needed some bills that they had to pay because, uh, you know, it, three years later, they came out with No Country for Old Men, which is certainly in my top three Coen brothers movies. Well, there's many factors that could have been involved that we don't necessarily know about. Dump trucks I mean, we money. know... We know that they wrote the screenplay. We know that they were in a pinch when Sonnenfeld dropped out. Maybe they were either contractually obligated to to fulfill the directorial shoes, or maybe they weren't ready to direct it at the moment and it kind of felt themselves in a pinch. I don't know. But I will say that um, after revisiting this film, um, it's it's. I honestly don't feel that it's as bad as it's reputation but at the same time i i it's definitely not one that i'm going to go too hard at bad for because it's not n- near the the quality of work that we're accustomed to with the cohen's but at the same time i don't think it necessarily needs to, to be a punching bag either yeah well i mean there's some scenes in there that i think are funny like like i said like it's as much as we we're, we're sitting on marlon wayne's character <laughs> right now i thought that he had the funniest scenes in the movie um like like really uh th- that part where uh tom hanks is giving you know uh, they're giving this great grandiose performance uh and uh, and uh you know everyone's cheering and everything like that and then martin wayans comes in and, and he just has this look on his face of what did i miss uh that definitely got a laugh from me so 
on that note, let's go ahead and move on to his next, uh, his second of five collaborations with Steven Spielberg, which is uh, the surprisingly low key but uh, very sweet. I, I don't like it. Terminal. No, I mean I, I'm, I'm kind of overstating for the wow. sake of, okay. for the sake of a joke, but but you know, like I said, I, notwithstanding my experience of of Tom Hanks laughing in my face while I take a shuttle bus out to the middle of nowhere to look at a fake airport. Um, uh, you know, I didn't watch this movie until probably maybe for 10 years. Like it might've been 2012 or 13 and it was on one day and I was like, you know what? I realized I never saw this. And it was just, it, to me, it was a testament to the fact that like it had generated so little interest for me that I did not go out of my way to watch a Steven Spielberg movie, which seems kind of inexplicable in general. <clears throat> Excuse me. But um, when I watched it, I realized why I had no particular interest in it. And, and it's not that it is a bad capital B movie. It's just that it's very slight. And, you know, to me, like, I get the um, playtime-like elements. Um, I get the um, you know, sort of the, the, the Tati-esque elements that it's trying to draw out. Um, but to me, it's, it's kind of like... Hank's playing it really safe in terms of playing this like, you know, teddy bear of a kind of character. Um, I find the romance to be sort of semi fully preposterous. Um, and then, and then, you know, it's, I, 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 while the idea itself, I understand what the appeal of it was for Spielberg and, and, and why they wanted to tell this story. I feel like it just doesn't come together in a way that resonates um, except as like this kind of like wild, um, you know, time capsule of this one particular um, political moment, you know, or cultural moment, because it was obviously inspired by the real uh, in this real incident Um and uh, so, you know, I, I think the performances are fine, but when you, you know, you go back through and you like look at everybody who's in it and you look at what it's about and you look at the way this guy sort of navigates this scenario and I'm just kind of like, okay, like I just, you know, I can't, I can't muster any real enthusiasm for it. And it doesn't resonate emotionally with me in the way that say by comparison, uh, catch me if you can, or, or even, you know, some of his later collaborations with, um, Spielberg did. I I like this movie. Um, it was a bit off-putting at first to kind of hear Tom Hanks do a Russian accent. Um, honestly, <laughs> I was. No, it's not Russian, but well, but yeah, cl close enough. Was, I know he was speaking Bulgarian, <laughs> but but you know, with Eastern European accent. But uh, you know, honestly, I I thought he was going to break into a Yakov Smirnov impersonation somehow. Uh, but. You know, uh, at the beginning of this movie, is it's it's very very two thousands, and uh, you know I'm going to bring this up again in a, in a oh boy when we're talking about another movie, <laughs> but it's very two thousands. Are we going to hear this every decade, Andy? No, no, we are going to hear this every decade, but especially you know this one. But yeah, you know, the, you know nine eleven. You know, you got to remember that. Well, I'm sure you guys remember, but after nine eleven. You know, you couldn't you couldn't uh, throw a rock two feet without hitting an American flag somewhere in a movie, and uh, of course that has the gratuitous American flag opening shot. Uh, you know, uh, airports were like a big thing, and and uh, 
I know that the incident that this took place in uh, was an ongoing incident that started in 1988. Uh, but but uh, yeah, it I. I don't know. And, and uh, what I really thought was, um, you know, we were kind of coming out of like the, the, the whole idea of, of uh, you know, hey, maybe we did make a mistake with all this uh, patriotism. And uh, what I like is that there's a there's a criticism of the heavy handedness of the U.S. government and how we treat, um, you know, people who are seeking asylum or people who come from other countries. Uh, it, it, it's some pretty good statements. Well, this certainly that. forms an interesting sort of little uh, series for for uh, for Spielberg because you know he did this and he also did, of course, um, uh, War of the Worlds at the same time, and and they were both, I think, very much movies that were him sort of reckoning with sort of a post um, 9-11 reality. Um, and you know, I would say that that movie has more to say. I think I, I would also, I would argue, and I know that that movie has a lot of really, uh, ad, uh, passionate fans. Um, you know, these movies both, I do think have some sort of commentary, but I would agree, or, you know, at least echo what you were saying, which is that I feel like it is very much a product of its time. And just, and I think that that comes at the expense of the film now, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I thought it was pretty cool to see uh, Zoe Saldana playing a Trekkie and when she uh, played Uhura later. So uh, I was, I had never seen this movie before. So when she did the, the Vulcan salute, I was like, oh, yeah. You know, she played a Trekkie before Absolutely. she played Uhura. So, yeah, that was cool. You know, I'll, I'll agree that perhaps the, the, the setting of the film may be of its time, but I... I won't agree that the actual tone of of the film is a, is of its time. Like I, I really do believe that Spielberg was getting in touch with his his early childhood influences, Frank Capra, and you know, and of course, what you already mentioned with a playtime and everything. Um, I just think he really wanted to make a genuine. Um, uncynical movie and you know he he definitely had his his obstacles ahead of him because you know like you said this was based on an actual or at least inspired by an actual memoir of an iranian refugee from the late 80s so obviously all that was changed um they ended up using a fictional country from where tom hanks character comes from because they they originally apparently wanted to use um, uh, what country was it? Give me a second, uh, Slovenia, but but apparently it didn't make sense for there to be internal s- civil war with that country for it to make sense in the current context. So, um, so so when you consider all those factors into it, yeah, there may be there, there's obviously going to be some kind of political parallels, but I think the heart of this movie is honestly just completely with um, the the character that, that Hanks is playing and the, the obstacles that he's facing and the motivations that he has, you know, the whole, um, the whole heart of it just being him wanting to do one last thing for his father and, you know, um, gather all the, the signatures from those jazz musicians he looked up to and, you know, helping his, his his friend that's played by Diego Luna, you know, um, meet his you know 
or or you know become acquainted with the the lovely lady that he's yearning for that's you know um played by zoe saldana you know it's just the little things like that that i think really try well you know i would just i i mean i certainly i think that's a good point um i would say that i feel like and i think that you know i would argue that spielberg has made probably several movies that were um you know not uncynical and very earnest um but i but you know to to some extent what you when you talk about all these things about like you know um uh, trying to connect um diego luna and zoe saldana and, and these other things to me all that stuff feels more like a like a wes anderson movie to me than it does a spielberg movie um and you know in the sense that like i feel like he can pull off that level of hmm. quirkiness um in a way that spielberg you know, you know, for better or for worse, I think he goes for like a big emotionality rather than like being able to just have a special little moment. Um, and so, you know, you have this, this this Tom Hanks character who is, you know, he's like he he goes in, he's you know, he's making a a bathroom or is it a bathroom that he makes? It's been a while since I watched it, but it's like he's tiling the the walls and then he's and then after that they're like coordinating this whole thing where he has like a dinner date and all this stuff and like all that kind of cutesy like almost like Rube Goldbergy kind of stuff. I feel like works better when you have a director who is more interested in the idiosyncrasies of it than he is just sort of like the sweet adorableness of this character. And I think that that's what costs Hanks um, maybe the, the, the greater appeal of the, of the character and maybe the movie for me, if that makes sense. I kind of saw like the, you know, he builds a fountain. I kind of saw that as, uh, you know, extension of, of uh, that great scene in uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind where he builds a full scale model yeah. Of, uh, yeah. of uh, you know, what is that called? Uh, Devil's Devil's Peak, Devil's Mountain in his living room. Um, you know, Spielberg to me as a director, you kind of have to like just let the magic work to a certain extent. But I was going to say, uh, this is this, this story has been told in film four times. Uh, and I would love to do a marathon of like each different kind. So in 1994, uh, the story of Mehen Nasseri was told. In a, tra- in a movie called Lost in Transit, and then it was he was the feature of a documentary called Sir Alfred of Charles de Gaulle Airport, and then in '96 this was made into an opera called Flight. So uh, it would be interesting to see how other directors would uh, go with this work. Well, what do you think about? You know, uh, um, I think I mean honestly, you know, it, it, that's a movie time. that. Um, when I, when, when I've watched it as a, as an older adult, um, there's parts of it that I like, I can buy into sort of the, I mean, the, the concept doesn't bother me at all, but, um, you know, but honestly, like watching it now, there's, there's sort of more of a, um, quite frankly, a, a technical marvel when you watch, um, the way that, you know, he's able to film those planes flying over and, and doing some of that stuff, which, which was all practical, um, you know, and so you watch it now, that's what kind of impresses me about that more so than, you know, maybe the story. It was not something that I was always a huge fan of or anything. Um, but it, but it's a movie that I, I liked well enough. And I do think, um, uh, Dreyfus is, is very good in it. Well, yeah. Cause the reason why I bring that up is because I feel that one thing that this has in common with that is that they're both pretty much 
generally regarded as, you know, light fair Spielberg movies, which is why they were never really considered much for award consideration or anything like that. And I kind of feel that that's perhaps why Spielberg, much like Ron Howard, kind of feels like he has to make these grandiose, important movies now instead of, you know, Sure. I mean, I think that's, I mean, that might be the case. I would, I would argue that, um, uh, I would, I would argue that, that Spielberg is much better at that, that than Ron Howard is, um, you know, and I think that, because I don't think that, I think one of the, one of the hallmarks of Ron Howard's movies is they don't have a lot of personality. I mean, I don't, I don't, that doesn't make them them bad. I think they're very well-made movies, but, um, but I would argue that, you know, you can watch a movie, um, like, uh, even, you know, right around this, uh, like Munich that came out around this time, which was also a reaction to his sort of um, 9-11 uh, feelings, you know, or working through that to me feels extremely personal um, and it feels extremely intimate. Um, and, you know, it still courted some of that um, that award season attention. But I don't think that's a movie that um, he's trying to grow, go for that level of grandiose um uh, you know, operatic sort of um, crowd pleasing element. Whereas I feel like this is a movie that, you know, to me was like, I feel like it was a situation where he decided he liked the idea and he got further down the road um, and then he made the movie and then it turned out to be, I mean, like to me, it's kind of like um, it's, it's a movie sort of like uh, the lost world where it's not a bad movie. It's a well-made movie. Um, but is it really that successful? Is, is it as interesting as, as another movie that he devoted himself fully to? Um, and I say that not having any real sense of how, how aggressively he devoted himself to this movie. But, but, you know, to me, it feels, again, it just feels more slight. It does not feel um, vividly like a Steven Spielberg movie, more incidentally. Well, I think one thing that we should at least give Spielberg credit for um and I won't say that this was entirely his decision. It's obviously because the, 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 the test screening wasn't entirely favorable. But um, the original ending had Catherine Zeta-Jones' character um, going to Manhattan with, with Victor. And I think that um, changing that scene definitely was a lot less conventional and... Um, reminded you of yeah i mean i definitely that's a, was really i think that, that was the, that was the best choice for the movie absolutely yeah yeah all right well i'm ready no you, you think i'm kidding i like this movie so is, i'm ready um <laughs> <laughs> I, I i know you do so yeah this is uh well let's just get right into it so um this is a uh, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I should preface this by saying I love express. Christmas. Ahead, I love Christmas movies. Um, I certainly, um, to some extent, grade at least uh, you know real what I consider to be real Christmas movies on a curve. Um, uh, and, you know, which is to say, not uh, Hallmark uh, originals always. Um, and you know, Polar Express. I I mean, I'm also. Uh, admittedly a bit of a technophile when it comes to um filmmaking i would say probably uh clearly not as much as somebody like robert zemeckis but um you know i remember when this came out and i remember going to see it in imax and i you know i 
I sort of, I guess it's, it's interesting because, you know, I suspect, um, you know, that you guys may have this argument as we were talking earlier, you're going to say it every decade. It's like, this is absolutely a movie of its time. Um, but I also think that, um, you know, I'm not a person who is necessarily, um, bothered by uh you know if you want to call it the uncanny valley or you want to call it the lack of technological advance uh advancement to make these you know uh cgi digital characters look human enough or whatever it is but you know i remember watching this movie and what really struck me about this movie um was that i felt like it it so wonderfully captures the idea um as an adult of fearing losing the thing that gives you excitement and joy as a child. Um, and that's what this movie very much is about to me. And I remember like bursting into tears the first time I watched it, when he goes to um, when they're in the, the, the square and they're watching and the, and the, the reindeer are there and those bells are moving up and down and he can't hear them. And it's the most heartbreaking thing in the world to think like, have I lost my ability to enjoy this? Um, and particularly as a person who's, who again, who loves Christmas and who, you know, my, my mom has a business doing Christmas decorations. Um, her house looks like uh, a Norman Rockwell painting at Christmas and, you know, all these other things like that was something that was really, really powerful to me. Um, if we're talking about, um, you know, I would say the, the, the Tom Hanks uh, performances in it, I think they're all really good. Um, I mean, I think he does a good job of differentiating these characters. I think it has uh, at least one too many um, roller coaster segments in it. Absolutely. And, and as I've gotten older and I've watched it numerous times, I'm like, yeah, this has at least one of those more than it needs. Um, and I think that that was just a byproduct of, of, of Zemeckis trying to build this out to like a feature length. Um, but I, you know, I think actually it's fascinating watching how refined some of the, CGI characters are in comparison to other ones where you can tell they built like the hero boy first and then they built some of the, the different Tom Hanks characters later on. Um, but I think it's a really terrific, emotionally engaging movie. I haven't watched it in a couple of years. It's probably been like maybe three or four years, but I've watched it many times. And I do think that um, it's, it, I, I do think it's a really underrated movie that I think unfairly gets overshadowed by um sort of the the technological feat of its of its making and you know to some extent i think that's probably true of of beowulf and um and a christmas carol as well which i did watch uh this year and that one held up slightly less well than i expected but also was again very interesting and i think um surprisingly effective um if you can get past that um again, that uncanny Valley thing, which, uh, for whatever, for, for whatever reason has never been an issue for me, but for whatever reason is definitely an issue to a lot of people. Well, before we dig any further, I think one thing you failed to, uh, mention in your analysis is that, uh, Hank's rendition of, uh, good keen, uh, when sells less is, uh, definitely inferior <laughs> to fair uh, enough, fair enough, fire, um, fair enough. Uh, Absolutely. Jagged. I take back all my praise <laughs> for the movie. I take it back. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, what do you got? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, 
I'm trying to stay positive and I try to find something good that I, that I find in here, but yeah. Um, I am one of those viewers who just can't get past the uncanny Valley. Uh, to me, it's like, it's like landing on a planet and you have a bunch of robots that have been programmed by humans who have gone extinct. And these robots are trying their best to mimic human life, human activity. It just feels like a big mimicry of, of real human existence to me. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it, but uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of scenes in here, which I just feel like is the equivalent of taking a rattle and rattling it in front of a baby's face. Like just the, the, at the end, like the, you know, things are clearly going up in the air uh, you know, definitely pro, definitely meant for 3D effects or IMAX effects, um, which which kind of casts a whole cynical tone over this whole movie for me because it just felt like an excuse to like, you know, well let's make more products for Christmas. So, and I did look it up. There is a Polar Express video game. Uh, there was a ride, and uh, Lionel Motor uh, Model Railroad still make. Polar Express trains. So, uh, I mean, this film was a huge financial success, and I think it hits like all of the right notes in order to be a financial success. But I just can't dig that deep into this. I, I, I just really can't for for various reasons. <clears throat> One thing I was curious, and Todd, since you are um, a fan of this movie, maybe you know the answer. So I know that. Previously, before Zemeckis came on board, Rob you know what? Ryan I honestly don't know the answer to that, but um, but this movie? was, I think, this was the first um, movie that uh, that Zemeckis did uh, as performance capture because after that he did uh, Beowulf next, and then after that he did um, he did A Christmas Carol. Um, yeah. Oh, he did Beowulf too. Well, I mean, oh, you know, okay, it's funny yeah. because I, Beowulf I has been on more recently, and I have seen that. Well, but... And you know, <laughs> I remember really admiring that at the time. I liked the idea that they were making like a PG thirteen uh, movie that was not just like a four kids kind of anime, you know, computer animated movie. I don't think it's necessarily more successful. Um, I don't think it's, you know, or it certainly doesn't hold up um, to mm -hmm. me. But I do think that it's a uh, an interesting thing, but to me, it that that choice to make not one, not two, but three different movies, two of which are are holiday movies, I think speaks at least to the fact that um, I don't believe that that Zemeckis was pursuing this as a gimmick. Now that doesn't mean I, I believe that he um, does not often. Uh, and, and I would say repeatedly get sort of bogged down by the technology that he's interested in exploring in his filmmaking. But, um, and, 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 you know, and quite frankly, you know, you would probably be right in saying that, um, that in terms of adapting it and, and you described me as like a, a baby with a rattle in front of them. I mean, the idea of building these movies out um, and trying to appeal as widely as possible as, as children's movies, or at least, you know, family entertainment, um, there probably is an element of that, not the least of which because this was inspired um, by a book by Chris Van Allsburg, who also wrote um, the source material for Jumanji. And he wrote um, the book that uh, the movie um, Zathura was built based on. Um, and, and Polar Express in particular is not a complicated story. I mean, they basically just sort of like 
they really had to construct a uh, a story for this to some extent. Um, and so, you know, if it suffers as a result of that, I, I would grant you that a hundred percent. And I, and I, and like I said, I do think that the movie becomes, um, increasingly, or maybe not increasingly, but sort of sporadically, uh, um, fixated on the idea of, you know, this, this being a ride that the audience is on as much as the characters. And so, there's, I think, three different sequences that are these like, oh, we're on a roller coaster, we're going up a hill, we're going down a hill, we're going around a corner, we're going up a-. you know, and, and I get that. Like, you know, when I watch it now, I'm like, I wish they could just take one of those out mm-hmm. because I think it would be a stronger movie um, as a result of that. Um, but I but again, I, um, you know, I, I would. I'm, I'm, I would actually be really curious, um, Sean, to go back to your initial question, if if it was always intended to be that way. But I, I suspect that, and I say this with all due respect, I, I, I don't think that that Rob Reiner would be the filmmaker to do that. Um, and so I, I, I question if if that was intended, um, something that was that that was always intended, or um, you know, Z- Zemeckis in exploring this then uh, relatively new technology. Um, just decided to throw throw this project uh, at it, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. I think the the cherry on the icing was seeing Steven Tyler <laughs> as an elf <laughs> at the end. That was uh, very very horrifying to me. Yeah, I'm gonna say I'm definitely more in the middle between you two. I, I definitely wasn't offended by this movie in any way and I'm definitely you know not necessarily drawn to it where I it's become a Christmas tradition for me either um, so, so yeah you know it's a it's a harmless G-rated um, movie one of a kind that we don't typically get anymore um, <laughs> one thing that I, I do find interesting that um, you may or may not already know is that uh Alan Silvestri's scores actually that is funny. Yeah, I, I, I never realized that, but that's, that's really funny. Games in this, which actually thinks really funny. But yeah, I, I would say you know I can't begrudge anybody who did, didn't like this movie the first time or hasn't warmed to it or or doesn't like the technology. I just know that um, I had uh, a level of skepticism going into it that I was unsure if I would respond to it, and and certainly as a person who. Um, as, as I've gotten older, have become, uh, to some extent, increasingly nostalgic for the holidays and for that sense of of, of holiday uh, sort of warmth, family, um, and 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 tradition uh, around Christmas. Um, you know, I'm always kind of taken aback at how much that works for me, whether or not um, everything leading up to that. Um, leading up to and including Steven Tyler as a singing elf, um, you know, may not, may not, may not work quite as well. So I will concede most of the criticisms <laughs> that you guys have um, while still saying that it is something that I, that I quite like. All right. Well, Andy, I'm going to let you, do we want to, I'm sorry. Do we want to just try to attack both of these two movies at the same time? It feels like it's reasonable I, to do so. One is yeah, better yeah. than the other for sure. So I'll, yeah, we, yeah. Can, we can do that. Well, let, let's do that. So, yeah, definitely take it off. I got to. Yeah, you, you, you start real quick. I'll be back in 30 seconds. OK, do you want me to take off? Yeah, take off. OK.
Okay. Uh, so I'm trying not to like, like, like start off on a big cynical note with this movie, but, uh, and, and I was, you know, whenever a, a movie is critically panned, I take a look at the criticism itself to kind of see, you know, what other critics think and, you know, do I have a valid criticism? But uh, I know a lot of the hatred for the Da Vinci Code came from the fact that so many uh, Catholics around the world uh, absolutely hated it and saw it as blasphemy. And I, I can definitely, uh, like, see to a certain extent how this would be certainly be blasphemy. But uh, again, and, and I know I've said mm -hmm. this so many times, the Da Vinci Code definitely is very much a solid 2000s movie. Um, it, it has two things that I really dislike about a lot of movies in the 2000s. <laughs> and that is that, that it feels like there's, the, the pedal is to the metal at all times. Like, like basically, you know, there's a car chase. Then we're getting this guy, the guy over here. Then we're investigating this. Now we're over here. And there's like no breathing room for character development. And <clears throat> really the, the most important character development comes right before the big revelation. And it's like, don't you think that it would have been important to tell uh, the police <laughs> or whoever it was before that your uncle was in a great society with, with masks and everything like that and not leave that information like right then? The second thing that, that I just really despise is, you know, the, the, the CSI effect. It's like, you know, we have this, we have like this, uh, this device where basically if we give the wrong code, then uh, vinegar will come and destroy this. No, we have to see it work in like every freaking intricate detail and glorious CG. But, uh, you know, there's no room to breathe in this movie. And it just tries to add so much in. And, uh, you know, just, I, I think that this was the beginning of the modern, uh, the modern uh, obsession with conspiracy theories. Uh, you know, not to get too political, but it's like, you know, every conspiracy theories are a big part of American political life now, like it or not. And uh, I think the appeal of the Da Vinci Code was to appeal to that idea or brought about the idea that, you know, everything has to have a conspiracy theory behind it. And uh, I, I just also want to say that, that uh, th this movie asks a lot of us too um, with the first murder. So a guy is shot in the chest. And so <laughs> as he's bleeding to death, he has time to take his clothes off write down things, go to different paintings, write things down there, and then go in and, and put himself into like a like an extra intricate, um, you know, uh, uh, like, like, a, like, like, like a mockery yeah, yeah. of, of uh, Leonardo da Vinci's, uh, you know, his, his things. It's just ridiculous. And uh, yeah. And, and uh, I don't know, the villain, you know, the villain has that old that stereotype <laughs> of like the, the, the Catholic who loves S&M. Evil Catholics always love S&M. And uh, he's, he's the evil uh, um, albino. I don't know. I, I, I could go on all day. Well, I'll say, you know, this movie, uh, but, my experience uh, with I'll, the Da Vinci I'll Code um, and its sequel um, really did not happen. Like it was there. There are there's a handful of pop culture franchises that um, even as a, uh, a film critic and an entertainment reporter, I sort of decided that I was just going to tap out of ever knowing about. 
And um, and so when the first Da Vinci Code came out, of course, this is like 100 uh, percent Beach Read bestseller. Um, it is, you know, uh, like one of these movies one that's based on this enormously popular thing in the same way for me. And I'm sorry, I'm not comparing them qualitatively necessarily, but but at the time, um, Harry Potter was like that for me as well, because I was never into Harry Potter. And so and which is not to take anything away from that. It just was something that I was never interested mm-hmm. in and never a part of. So I was happy never to see. And so for many years, I had not seen um, either the first or second um, uh Da Vinci Code movies. And then when I got invited to go to the set of the third one, I was like, you know, I better, I should probably know a little bit of something about this. And so I think like essentially they are insufferably long movies. That's kind of the biggest problem for me. I mean, you're talking about them having the the gas pedal to the floor the whole time. The problem to (laughs) me is they never end. I mean, I just remember I was like watching, I think it was like the second one, maybe the night before I was about to go on set for, um, I brought in a, I brought a DVD player with me while I was traveling and I'm like in my hotel room and I'm like, I'm going to just try to watch this as I drift off to sleep at like four o'clock in the afternoon. Cause I'm so out of my time zone and everything. And I was like, how much is left on this? Cause I'm like, it feels like they're pretty close to catching the guy. And there was still like 55 minutes or something. And it was an hour and a half into the movie. And I was like, no, I can't do it. I just cannot watch one more second of this. It's like absolutely insufferable. And I was like trying to like fast forward just so I could sort of see what happened. And I was like, none of this even makes sense to me, which of course it might make more sense if I, of course, watched it in regular time, et cetera. But, but to me, it was sort of a wildly um, uh, misguided. uh, I felt like it was a misguided casting choice for um tom hanks um you know not the least of which because that terrible terrible hair but also for you know it's like if you want to have a guy who is like a know-it-all you know uh (laughs) conspiracy theorist who's an expert on all this stuff like get a guy who can kind of be a dick um you know because i feel like that's sort of comes with that territory in general but also that makes the character a little (laughs) bit more interesting um, you know, because like he's kind of like this very bland, milk toast kind of genius who knows this stuff. And you're like, okay, you know, I mean, like it's just the, the thing just you go from one sequence to the next. And, you know, the idea that he's remotely like kind of sexy in the way that these movies even vaguely try to flirt with to me feels like a, another, a, another misguided choice. And so, you know, it becomes, I, I, uh, as a person who is, uh, you know, a, a non-believer in every possible way when it comes to religion and and stuff like that, um, you know, that doesn't bother me at all. Um, I will also add that, you know, you, you make an interesting point about conspiracy theories. This, of course, was also at the same time that they were making um, the National Treasure movies, which similarly try to in, infuse these historical documents with all this like idiotic Illuminati level complexity mm-hmm. that, you know, doesn't exist. Or maybe it does. Who knows? We'll, we'll maybe we'll crack it today. But um, but you know that kind of stuff to me, I find to be, um, you know, it's like mm-hmm. it can be fun, but it, it, in the way that it's executed in these movies was very tedious to me and not fun to watch. Um, so uh, I think these movies are probably, as you say, they are the epitome of a two thousands uh, kind of movie. I think they have no 
um, personality going back to our discussion about Ron Howard earlier. I felt like they had very little um, uh, energy that distinguishes them from um, their source material. And they're just these very bland translations of a book that might be interesting on the page, but on the screen just is interminable. Mm -hmm. What what I, the the two things that that I, I just really can't, standard the character development they just things come up only when they're convenient uh you know we have uh tom hanks's claustrophobia <laughs> which is mentioned twice and then uh in angels and demons it's never mentioned again and supposedly it's like big uh you know revelation about his character and i guess it wasn't completely pedal to the metal but it was just really uneven i just now that i'm thinking about it there was a scene that was like 30 or 40 minutes long it seemed a long time where they go to sir ian mckellen's house and he's explaining all these theories to them and that scene just went on and on and on it's i i don't know what to say but i definitely suspect that um you know because of the popularity of the book uh no matter who directed this this would have been a big financial hit um, I do suspect that dump trucks of money were exchanged uh, in order to make this project. Um, but yeah, Sean, are you a big fan? Really hollow to me. You know, I I won't say that I'm a, a big fan, but I, I do kind of want to debate you a little bit on on Ron Howard, unless I'm misinterpreting your view on him. Do you feel that he's he doesn't have personality? as far as his entire filmography goes, or do you think he just kind of hasn't shown it after a certain point in his career? Oh no. Every director has a dud. Every director has a dud. And, and I mean, I would be very, very skeptical of any director who told me that they don't have a dud in their filmography. But in the, I, think... I, I feel that every film that he's done up until the paper completely shows personality. In my opinion, I just kind of feel that he got, caught up in the in the studio game and um you know doesn't isn't necessarily afforded to um show his his quirks that he has in his previous films which i think a lot of um previous roger corman collaborators have fell victim to which all of ron howard's movies to me have personality up until the paper and that's coming from and, and i and i you know as i previously said in our other episode i think apollo 13 is great but that's also the point where he started becoming intertwined more with the studio system and i feel like a lot of directors that came from the the roger carmen school went from you know doing more personality driven adventurous films to kind of you know, being put in that position of needing to play ball with the studios, which is why a lot of directors like Joe Dante and Jonathan Demi aren't really playing that game anymore. You know, it's just like, it's really hard to let your personality shine once there's so many hands in the pot, so to speak. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of, there was a lot of uh, expectations about this movie. You know, this was a, I, I'm not sure, but I, I imagine next to Harry Potter, it was, uh, you know, one of the best bestsellers of the 2000s. Uh, so there's definitely a lot of uh, big expectations there. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I don't know how much of this I 
if you guys actually heard me say any of it, but I, you know, I would say that I agree um, that even if I don't necessarily like all of um, Ron Howard's early movies, I do think that they have much They do have much more personality than his later stuff. Um, you know, um, and uh, but I just feel like uh, there's a point. I mean, I, quite frankly, I almost feel like Ed TV might have been like the last time he really kind of like did his own thing in a way that was that was really um, unique. Although, although I, there's other stuff where you're just sort of like, I don't understand why he made some of these movies, but but um, but you know, um, I think that uh, we we were in an era in which adaptations of these enormous blockbusters, uh, uh, blockbuster novels bestsellers um was sort of in its heyday um and then and then doubling that with um uh, as we discussed before sort of this emergence or this rise to prominence of this sort of conspiracy th- theory um storytelling um you know created to some degree a perfect storm uh to captivate uh you know first readers and then viewers but uh unfortunately uh, it's it's just a little bit of a it, it, more than a little bit. It's a slog to get through, in my opinion. So yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. Is this um the first movie to have its world premiere at Cannes Film Festival and be nominated for a a Razzie in the the same year? I don't know, but I I can't imagine it, that it's the first. But I mean, if it is, then it certainly deserves that dubious honor. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's a scene in there that that. There are a few scenes that have intentional hilarity. Where, where uh, I forget, they're they're like a, uh, you know, um, they're cornered by a gunman, and then all of a sudden, this dove, in, in in glorious slow motion, this dove comes down on this guy's face, going coo, and and like it attacks him. I was, I I had to rewind that and watch it another time. I couldn't <laughs> believe what I was seeing. Well, one thing I think is interesting is uh, this movie actually has. Um, uh, a pretty high uh, body count, con- considering um, you know how how profile of a of a movie it is. Um, I believe there's 16 on-screen deaths, not including um, flashback death scenes. So I don't know if that tops Road to Perdition or not. <laughs> but um, that, that's definitely an, an interesting alchemation. I love um, the guy just uh, sitting there in the park uh, in a beautiful night doing heroin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, uh, Hans Zimmer did the, the score for this as well as the other two um, Landon um, adaptations with Howard. Um, he actually replaced <clears throat> um, James Horner, who went on to do the, the New World with Terrence Malick instead. I, I'd say that was... Uh, probably a good decision for him mm-hmm. um i'll honestly say i i'm not as uh i'm not as deeply offended as as you two by this film <laughs> I, I think that uh these films definitely have declined with each entry but i i kind of feel that this this first film was um entertaining enough for me i don't know if it was worth all the the controversy with the uh you know, devout Christian picket lines um, uh, upon this movie's arrival. Um, it doesn't. It definitely didn't live up to to that hype. But as far as telling a kind of 
interesting yet far-fetched uh, conspiracy thriller. I, I'd say it kind of did its job to entertaining me at the time. Yeah, and and unfortunately, on my experience, I think it also created a lot of uh, you know uh, baby conspiracy theorists. Theorists, a few people I know who saw this film were like, "Well, maybe." Maybe Jesus did have a kid after all. And then they started reading all these kooky Gnostic gospels and stuff like that about it. So, well, yeah. let me ask you this. Um, what, what do you find more entertaining, this movie or the, the Mel Gibson movie? Oh, the Mel Gibson movie for sure, just because it's a passion project of a madman. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it, uh, the, the Mel Gibson, The Passion of the Christ is, is basically an S&M movie. No, I'm not talking about Passion of the Christ. I'm talking about the conspiracy theory. <laughs> the conspiracy theory. Oh, the Mel Gibson. I've never seen it. Okay. Yeah, I thought you were talking about the Passion of the Christ. <laughs> All right. Hey, Todd, the ball's in your court. <laughs> oh my lord! I, honestly, I my memory of of that uh, of that Donner movie is so faint. Um, I remember not liking it, quite frankly, but. Um, uh, because it, it it's it's one of those. I mean, that's a that is a a quintessential '90s movie where they're like, oh, we're gonna try to like shoehorn these two big stars to like kind of have a sort of romance in the middle of this, and one of them's like an insane person, uh, and the other one's Julia Roberts. Um, so you know, I wouldn't say that I feel like that really uh, was convincing to me, but um, but yeah, I. I I would say, you know, whoever wins uh, in that one, we we all lose, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and as far as the, the sequel to Da Vinci Code goes, I'll say that it was kind of, it, it kind of didn't have much of a chance from the get-go, in my opinion. For some reason, they decided to not follow the novel and make it uh, a prequel to the events of the first film and make it a direct sequel mm. so i think you're kind of already in trouble there tom hanks actually went personally to leonardo dicaprio to offer him the role that ewan mcgregor ended up playing and uh he obviously turned that down um apparently in the novel that character was of italian descent yet for some reason in this film mcgregor's doing a heavy irish accent Mm. Um, which uh, to me probably is is a re they probably were trying to avoid similar controversies with the second one after the first one yeah you have to mm -hmm. imagine right yeah that definitely makes sense and and also this is was also kind of a victim of the the writer's strike that happened in 2007 i know they wanted to do some some rewrites with goldman's script that uh they couldn't afford to do at the time and uh, and that's too bad because apparently Goldsman made three point eight million for this Oof, script, man. which is a pretty wow. hefty payday for a screenwriter. Yes, yeah. Hank still had to go to David Coep to rewrite the script after the writer's strike. Wow, <laughs> it's better. Better doesn't necessarily mean good, but Angels and Demons is definitely better, uh, just because it takes its time on more character development for Tom Hanks's character. Um, you know, he actually I, has. <laughs> something that he's looking for you know we actually see what his passion project is with uh you know researching but uh yeah it, it's it's just another convoluted mess and i know that a lot of it had to do with the fact that they uh rewrote it they rewrote uh 
they, they made the script. They had to change a lot of things in the story because it's uh, they had to make it into a sequel rather than the prequel it's meant to be. Well, I, I, I personally think you're crazy if you think this movie is superior to the Da Vinci Code, but it's well, not a hill that I fell on dying on tonight. No, so. no, no, man. So so basically, I would say that, like, you know, the common cold is better than the stomach flu. Both of them <laughs> suck, but at the same time, you know, I I wouldn't choose either of them for good. So, so th- this movie is the common cold. Uh, da Vinci Code, uh, Code is the stomach flu. That's funny. Well, anyways, I, I I feel like Ron Howard was able to make a more competent movie the first go around. Personally, I think the evidence kind of is self-explanatory. I mean, Ron Howard even went on to work on his obviously superior movie, in my opinion, Frost Nixon in between post-production on this film. So that just kind of tells you what dire straits this entire endeavor was to begin with. But yeah, that's, that's pretty much where, where I'd leave with, with this, unless you guys have anything else to add to it. Angels and demons is hilarious. It's, it's basically about, uh, was it a priest or a Cardinal who wants to commit, who uh, commits all these horrific murder, like silence of the lamb style murders and then uh, save, save uh, Rome from from an antimatter explosion uh with with a uh, helicopter oh good lord <laughs> so 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 just when you like just break it down you're like wait a minute this movie is fucking ridiculous so <laughs> all right well hopefully um i i think this should at least end on a on a higher note at least it will in my case um i know todd this is one um that uh would have been your first time viewing for this show. Um, And I actually had a conversation um, about this movie with, with Bren earlier. And uh, he's, he's not as as high on this movie as I am. He actually kind of feels that that Mike Nichols is a overrated director, which we didn't really get into. He (laughs) said that he'd explain that to me later on, but, but I, uh, I, I really like, Charlie Wilson's War. I, I don't think that um, it's by any means Mike Nichols' um, best film, but I've definitely seen um, directors go out on worse as far as their, their final feature film goes. Uh, what did you think of it, Todd? You know, I liked it. Um, you know, first of all, it's funny because I, I had forgotten that um, Aaron Sorkin had written uh, the screenplay. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not really... Um, uh, a part of the uh, Aaron Sorkin relitigation uh, uh, trend that seems to be happening, where everybody kind of is just suggesting that he's not good or out of touch or whatever, although he might be for all I know. Um, but I find, I, I will say that I, I like this movie. I enjoyed watching it. Um, it's a fascinating story that I think that um, Sorkin captures with exactly the right kind of energy. Um, in terms of, and I think that it ends on sort of a perfect note of, uh, in terms of recognizing that um, he was able to to generate um, this incredible uh, amount of money to help um, these people. And then when it actually came to not the destruction of these countries, but their sort of um, their rehabilitation and their uh, rescue 
um, there was no money and no attention given. Um, and, you know, I think that's actually pretty great because it, because I think that it very skillfully undercuts the, ac- the accomplishments um, that, uh, that Charlie Wilson uh, made. Um, I will also say that I'm not convinced that um, I don't think that Tom Hanks is cast right in the movie though. And, and the reason to me is that, is that again, you need someone in a way as, as I've talked about with some of his other roles is, is you really want somebody who's kind of like a big slovenly asshole kind of like, you know, I mean like a guy who's a shrewd, negotiator for sure and a guy who but you know i just don't believe for a second that he's like this womanizing alcoholic he is not an actor who if there are many things he can convince me of but that's one thing that he was just not able to do and it's like the first scene you watch um and clearly there's obviously an element in the story about how like it's like oh was he really in this room and was there cocaine and was there this and it's like well, you know, because it's Tom Hanks, you actually know for a fact that the that the answer is no, as opposed to, you know, uh, for example, or by comparison, immediate comparison, someone like um, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Or I think there's somebody who could be a little more, who could play that role a little more sleazy. And I think that would actually make the moral ambiguities of the film as a whole work more strongly. Um, I think, I think that Charles, I think that he gives a good performance, but like, I also don't believe for a second that he would ever fuck Julia Roberts, quite frankly. Like, you know, it's like, I mean, like even that Julia Roberts, you know, and it's like, you get done. Like, it was like one of these things where you're like, oh, so they're just friends. And then they show them and they're like, oh, they're in, he's in the tub and she's in the, you know, she's getting dressed after they have sex or whatever and i'm like yeah right they never they never had sex and it's like you know i not that i need to see that on screen but like the idea of sort of the post-coital conversation the the sexual chemistry of their relationship um and just sort of in general the way that he was such a hedonist and you know pursued his passions irrespective of the way that that his perception was in Hollywood, I mean, not in Hollywood, excuse me, in Washington, D.C. I just don't really buy all that stuff. And so it's like, you know, it's like a sleaze with a heart of gold. He can sell me on the heart of gold, but he can't sell me on the sleaze. Um, that, that said, <laughs> I think that Philip Seymour Hoffman is fantastic. And I think he's perfect because, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman was an actor who I think had an enormous um, sentimental edge as an actor. But I also think there were few actors as good as him who were so fearless in risking um, their unlikability and their just flat um, uh, sort of toughness um, that, that you put, that you watch him in that role. And you're like, like, I love this guy, but I also like, no understand why he's such an asshole and everybody hates him. And then you watch him, like they have a scene where they meet up in a bar and he's talking to Julia Roberts character. And he's like, you know, if you fucked me, this would be really a good situation for both of us. And, you know, and you're like, wow, like, like that's the kind of moment that kind of shocks you at how, um, fearless a character is that they either lack the self-awareness or they don't care. And, you know, to some extent, I think that's, that's a quality that, that Charlie Wilson, the character needed more of that Tom Hanks, unfortunately, because he is so likable and he is so sort of uh, harmless for lack of a better way to describe it lacks and, and it, and that 
takes that element out of the story that I think could have been a much more merciless um, social portrait or social commentary as a story. I do think it's a real, I think it's a very entertaining movie. I think it's good. It's, it's, it's uh, very captivating, but I think it lacks something. I, yeah, I kind of agree with you there. Cause I think one pattern that we see with Hanks is that at a certain point, he definitely was um, garnered uh, control as, as far as the characters he portrayed on screen. And there were a lot of themes that he would kind of, uh, make steps towards um, not letting his character do certain things to not tarnish, you know, his whole uh, reputation as, as a public figure, which is probably why, you know, he wasn't exactly um, a maliciously violent character in Road to Perdition or like why later on when he's portraying Walt Disney, he's not, you know, seeing chain smoking or anything like that there's a lot of little things that would kind of um render his public reputation as far as the the characters he portrays on screen because of how much he's in the limelight Mm -hmm. i would say my uh criticism of this movie would be that there was too much of an emphasis on the whole uh good time charlie the drinking and the womanizing um so This was uh, this movie was based on a nonfiction book. The the whole story of how the U.S. or Charlie Wilson supplied the Mujahideen with weapons, and uh, you know uh, Wilson was a shrewd negotiator. You know he was elected eleven times, uh, worked on the Kennedy campaign, so he definitely had a resume behind him. And uh, I feel that uh, you know, like you said, they were trying to reconcile the whole. Uh, idea of him being a successful politician with being uh, a drunk. But I think at the same time, they kind of played his drunkenness for comedic effect, which was not necessarily the smartest decision in a lot of uh, aspects. of. Well, I I would, and I would, I would agree with that, but I would also say, I do think that to some extent, one of the things that it just could have done better in general is, is, um, is just, just merge those two things. Because I do think like, you know, the idea because clearly it was an element of his not just negotiating but it was like oh i'm gonna you know this guy gets brought a bottle of scotch or he goes someplace or he's you know meeting with these people who you would think would be the last people who could facilitate this kind of um this kind of work but i think that like you know having a guy who is um either more um transparently diplomatic or more or or maybe um more capable of integrating those two aspects of his personality into one, I think would also make the story a little bit stronger. Mm-hmm. I'm, I haven't read the book, but I just wonder how much of it was, uh, you know, was, was fabricated for the movie. I, I mean, I, I thought it was pretty funny how he, uh, he's negotiating in, in, you know, in, 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 uh, you know, with, with uh, Muslims and then he forgets that they don't stock alcohol. And, and to me, that just seems like a, rookie politician mistake but maybe he was just too hungover i don't know well all i know is that uh when aaron sorkin wrote this he hadn't actually fully written a a feature film in uh, about a decade he was uh still coming off the west wing when he did this um his his last feature film that he got sole credit for was the american president back in 95 um he did get 
um, partial credit for script doctoring The Rock for Michael Bay and Bulwark for Warren Beatty in between. But um, as far as the changes I know that were made as far as his script from the book to final product is that his script apparently was a lot more explicit when it came to connecting everything to the mission in Afghanistan and the 9-11 attacks and the rise of the Taliban and all of that. Um, I do know that as far as um, Charlie Wilson's stable of woman in the film referred to as Charlie's Angels was all fabricated and, and that um, the only person that was um, directly working for Charlie Wilson was a man named Charlie Schnebel. So mm -hmm. that might have been played up to a more, um, I guess, uh, raunchy and, 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 and nerve-pushing script that Sorkin might have initially had, which it seems like. And I think that there were um, hands that came between that, between his, his initial screenplay and actual filming that kind of ended up uh, toning things down. Mm -hmm. I, I know that uh, Tom Hanks, uh, the original ending for this movie was the, it was going to end on 9-11 and uh, Tom Hanks uh, completely kiboshed hmm. that idea, which I thought it was good. Uh, you know, there, there's, of course, it remains an elephant in the room, but it doesn't explicitly mention uh, the 9-11 attacks. Yeah, well, certainly for me, I would say not. I, I didn't know that, but also seeing this movie a little more detached from um, even that potential context um, is is an interesting footnote. Um, but I think that you know, I think that it's it's an interesting. I will say, I do think that it's a, a somewhat risky um, and smart um, framing of this story to to look at it at the end where it's where it is um, clearly indicting. Um, the U.S. for its lack of um, of of infrastructural support of of the uh, of of these countries, you know, after going through and 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 endlessly and and breathlessly funding um, their sort of warfare warfare aspects, and um, and so I, I what I do like is that you know for a movie that came out in two thousand seven, it was it was not fawning and celebratory of. Um, of America or its policies, which I think is, uh, which I think ultimately is, is a good thing. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. This, this came out in uh, what, 2007. Yeah. 2007. So we were just coming out of uh, the whole hangover of the early two thousands where we kind of woke up and we were like, Oh God, what did we do? So yeah. 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 For sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, um, I just want to say that uh, Todd, it was great having you on. Uh, yes. Is there anything that you'd like to to go ahead and let the listeners go about, um, other than the the upcoming Fangoria issue? We're all looking. I mean, to? Um, you know, I'm I'm working on a couple of things. I have a a variety feature that I'm not far enough into to to tell too much information about, but um, but I. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm keeping busy with a lot of different stuff. I, I've been, I will tell you, I've been, uh, one of the things I haven't really done a whole lot of is covering TV series um, regularly. And I've been covering uh, that show, Resident Evil, that's a Resident Alien. I keep saying Resident Evil. I say it every time. Resident Alien that's <laughs> on sci-fi. And I think it's a really terrific uh, show in general. Um, and I've really been enjoying writing about that because uh, it's a show that I think is really clever um, and smart 
and also has a really nice um, edge of sentimentality. Um, and um, and whether or not you read my reviews of the episodes, I definitely recommend people people watch the show. Yeah, that's what I've definitely been interested in. Do you need to have cable and sci-fi channel to watch it, or is it? Um, you know, only? it might be streaming, but I, you know, I honestly don't know. I uh, once I because I started covering it uh, because I was doing an interview with um, Alan Tudyk, which was really fun. Um, but uh, since then, I I've just been like recording the episodes and 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 watching them, and and certainly it's on our um, our cable, but it's you know basic cable. It's sci-fi. That's awesome. I'm definitely interested in checking that out. Um, For sure. W- what I've seen from the TV spots that that show looks yeah. like a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, two weeks, it, we're going to do our wrap up with Tom Hanks, which is going to be a most recent decade of his. And we're going to have uh, Michael Reyes from Cinema, Cinema Blend on uh, talking to us about that. And uh, Todd, it's been uh, really fun having you on the show and we definitely like to have you on again at some point um, absolutely yeah thank you todd we, we definitely yeah of course of course on. it was my pleasure and uh, i appreciate getting to uh to to chat about tom hanks with you guys